podcast, guys, is brought to you by the new term fxphd.com. Over at FXPHD, we obviously have a new term just starting, the October term, and in it is a new DOP course that many of you listening to the RC might be interested in. It covers gripping, how to move the camera, all the cool gear involved in moving the camera, and it's being taught by myself and Ben Allen. It's just one of the many courses on offer over at fxphd.com. And by supporting FXPHD, you support podcasts like this. Thanks so much. You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast covering digital cinematography. And this week we're going to be covering a whole bunch of stuff, Movi tests out in the field, what my friend Mr. Wingrove has been up to, uh, an interview in the Red Room with a documentarian, and a whole lot more here at this week's uh, FX Guide RC podcast, where we see our role to kind of mine the news, filter the blogs, and go down some rather notoriously, rather curiously, rather interesting rat holes. This is the camera tech that we obsess about, I guess discuss, argue, try and work out. And we'd like you to join us in our conversation and be a part of it. And of course, I'm joined this week, though not in the studio, by my good friend, Mr. Hello. Jason Wingrove. Hello, through the magic of the intertubes. Yes, yes. We don't need to be co-located anymore. No. Virtualize no. your existence. No. How are you, sir? Good, good, good. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm very You're well. You're a busy man. I have. Busy I've been man. up since 4.30 this morning filming. Feeding the machine. Feeding the beast. Yes. And it's been good. Now it's uh, about midday and it's very hot here in Sydney, so I'm glad to be indoors. But I was at it Bondi Beach. A marvellous beach. Oh, excellent. Yes, dawn at Bondi. Perfect. Oh, always a good thing. Yes. How about you? Uh, yes, good roasting away here. Quite hot. And uh, I'm underneath my house in the cool, quiet dungeon. Uh, yeah, been busy prepping a few things, posting a few things, and uh, having a lot of people screw around with schedules and cancel shit they booked from weeks in advance and months in advance and yeah basically dicking around when i saw you briefly dicking yesterday, me around using you were, me you were my, super busy i was yes probably yes when i was last i <laughs> when we last uh bumped into each other was uh on set yes was it yesterday yesterday indeed super busy and um had a quick drop and run but uh, yeah, a lot of just meetings and pitches and treatments and things and, you know, in um, uh, fully uh, imagining that 90% of them will just cock around for weeks and never confirm or uh, decide they don't want to do whatever it was they've been planning for months. And anyway, shutting up now. It's <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, this, this fucking business, let me tell you, agencies who do not know, the left hand do not know what the right hand is doing. One of the things I found kind of difficult was that whole uh, leaving it to the last minute and then expecting it done really, really quickly, um, which I almost say falls under the category of what? You've got something else to do other than work for me? Yeah, um, as a, usually the production is the, the last minute thing. Oh, right, yeah, we've got to shoot this, uh, yeah, do this whole shoot thing. Uh, that would be the left to the last minute. Uh, or they'll leave to the last minute the fact that they need to just you know pass the script by uh, some sort of, Somebody high up in, you know, some, we don't read, it's just a bit of a really, it's just a, uh, uh, it's just dotting the I and crossing the T just to show this script to this person. And that person will uh, completely veto or shut down the entire shoot or say, what are you guys doing? We're, we're, we're not going to shoot this script. This is completely wrong. This is a completely off brief. Back to, back to, uh, back to the drawing board, you lads. Mm. So, yeah, that's what they leave to the last minute, showing everybody involved who could possibly cancel or veto a shoot. That, 
that person. Thanks. Anyway, <laughs> man, grown-ups. Right. I haven't, I haven't actually got that problem, but I could see that that would be super painful. I do remember that problem from, uh, from when I was in production. Yeah, exactly. Just multiple, multiple levels of, levels of client, and eventually, if you ask enough people, you're going to find someone who says, this is completely wrong. And that's only after they've had uh, uh, production companies um, scouring the world for locations and working and doing seven weeks of treatment revisions and rewriting scripts and uh, re redoing animatics and uh, revising storyboards. And, I was yeah. talking to somebody this morning on set, and they were saying that there was a first director who'd basically got into the habit of helping doing um, uh, treatments. And now all they did, they didn't actually go on set anymore, all they did was treatments. And the idea was directors would send them uh, yes. you know, their notes. and then they Give would, me their number. They would, they would then um, basically do stuff in InDesign and produce these really gorgeous things. And the other thing is the mm, director mm. would say, oh, these are the kind of uh, shots that I'm talking about. And yeah. they were very good at accessing uh, libraries and various, you know, paying for them, not stealing them, but, you know, uh, image... Um, Online and then uh, putting together like really nice portfolios of stuff so that the director could hand it to the agency, who could hand it to their client, who could also. Oh, absolutely. That's what yep. we're doing. A lot of production companies I deal with, they have your own treatment people or in house or uh, externally that they deal with, and I will give a brief overview or I'll do a 15 minute phone call and, you know, spout a few um, hackneyed references, and then someone will uh, create some beautiful, indeed, as you say, beautiful in design, glossy. Um, spanky um, piece of art that uh, hopefully convinces client that I'm the most amazing one. But uh, yeah, that's not, that's that's uh, many many production companies have uh, an entire department just doing that stuff. Pretty rare that the director will be the person who will write every single word. I still do some writing, but I don't always do the whole layout thing. It depends on the turnaround time and the budget and who I'm dealing with. Yeah, I mean, this one they said, look, uh, the reality is that it's the director's words, but unfortunately the rest of it isn't. <laughs> yes, you can get caught out. There's uh, many of anecdote of directors who are uh, sitting at pre-production meetings being asked questions about treatments they never wrote <laughs> or the uh, you know cut-and-paste uh, fail comes into place where you know the old... The um, some completely other uh, oh. <laughs> uh, product name product name creeps into the the treatment. So when you, you say here that our car will fly exactly. internationally, exactly, do you mean that? Yes, mm-hmm. if for our Chevy commercial, what do you exactly mean when the, the can pops open and we see the beautiful fizz in slow motion, or you know, yeah. that's uh, that kind of thing. That happens. That does happen a bit, and directors can definitely get caught out. You want to be a bit more. You want to be quite involved in the treatment process. I don't know if you're willing to answer this question, but what's your success to treatment ratio? Or what do you think it is around the industry if you don't want to discuss yours? Uh, yeah, it's pretty hard to tell, I'd say. Somebody told know. me that they thought it was it was around 5 to 1 to 10 to 1. Is that what most directors would do, about 5 to 1? Yeah, it's probably about right, probably about 5 to 1, sometimes 3 to 1. Depends. You can have good month, bad month. You can you can have a good month where you'll just... You know, you'll ace every every one and, and get every job, and then worry about how you actually do them all. And then you'll just have like, you can have a shitty couple of months where literally you cannot get a break, and you will lose every single one uh, 
not necessarily to other directors, but as I, you know, read my previous rant, just jobs will just fall over or they, you know, someone has a rethink or they'll reschedule and then you can't do it or, or you just can't do it at all. So uh, probably, probably 30, probably 50% of the, probably 30% of the stuff I can't do or I don't do because of schedule. I just can't, I can't, I can't do it. But yeah, definitely, probably five to five to one things probably pretty fair. And given a lot of the time, you are in a pool of three to one as well. So that's probably every every second every second pitch. You're you know one in three. You know, um, Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman, the uh, very famous yes book. Yeah. book. So yes. he wrote a follow-up book to that, and I, I can't actually remember its name. But it was, was it Which Lie Did I Tell? No, oh, that might have been it. Yeah, I don't know. It might have been Which Lie Did I Tell. Anyway, the point is, in that book, he describes how he didn't work for like ten years or something. Mm. No film that he wrote got made for like ten or twelve years, something like that, right? And and I remember thinking, huh? And he said, now if you're reading this and you're going, huh? Then you'd be like me. But let me just explain how this works. And he just ran through what had happened to each of the projects that looked really, really good but had, like, gone a whole long way down the pipe and then, like, been derailed, stopped. Somebody, had, you know, an actor literally had dropped out or, mm. like, a director died or, you know, it was, like, this extraordinary series of events. And this is him coming off an Academy Award win or two. Yeah. And he's like, you wouldn't think that you could, like, be this successful and then have nothing made for a decade. I'm not I'm, – I'm making the number up, I guess. Yeah, yeah, sure, particularly when, when they're fairly long-form, you know, long-term yeah. projects. And but take, it sounded completely reasonable. This is my point, mm. right? It was, like, mm. the not working bit. And, yep. you know, it wasn't like he hadn't got – paid because he'd been doing treatments and working with studios and he'd been doing all the right things it's just the luck of the draw meant yep. that uh following on from a huge amount of success he didn't then have basically any success <laughs> um, uh well not success that you would know to have as a screen credit i guess that's really the way um, to describe it anyway i just yeah. remember reading that and i was just thinking you know it's true isn't it like it just could be the luck of the draw that after writing butch casting the sundance kid and the princess bride and a bunch of other hugely successful things you have what appears to be a completely dry patch for no reason other than just the way that films get greenlit and things happen and i'm pretty sure it must happen in your place as well is that you just be totally on a roll and then just a series of things oh, yeah, seem to absolutely fall but over for no apparent reason in a line and absolutely boom. But a much shorter uh, timeline version of that than if you're if you're doing, um, you know, long long uh, TV projects or TVC projects or a doco rather than actually an entire feature, which can you know if you you can be develop it for two years and then it can completely fall over and then, you know, there goes the you know there goes a third of a decade. All so, the president's yeah. men. Sorry, that was the other thing that he wrote. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's that was fantastic. fantastic I think he film. did he work on Misery. I feel like you just worked on a bunch of stuff. Anyway, I digress. But um, yeah, it was just uh, an extraordinary career to suddenly have a what looked to the outsider a complete, uh, you know, loss of of success. Just nothing to do. Yeah, with. whatever happened to that guy? Yeah, and it's so easy to sort of do that, and you don't until you read it. Like when you read it, no way does it sound like he's in the wrong meetings, done anything wrong. As an outsider, you'd be like. And this is not true, but as an outsider, you'd be like, oh, he must have been like, had some problem, a divorce, alcoholism, something to suddenly go off the rails like that. No, not yeah. even close. No, no, trying every day to get a gig <laughs> for a decade. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's like statistics, right? Like if you tell people 
to uh, look at number sequences of tossing a coin, if they ever see a pattern of like six heads or seven heads, they'll be like, no, no, that couldn't happen. And of course, that's exactly not true. And that it's quite often you could get like a run of six, nine heads in a row. It doesn't mean the thing's rigged. It'll all average that's out right. again. And nine heads, then there's still a 50-50 chance of the next one being a head. Yeah, but the point is at the moment that when you're throwing the, the eighth or ninth head in a row, you're like, oh my God, who did I kill in a former life yeah. to have this kind of karma? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So some, some, definitely some months it feels like that. And I'm sure there's plenty of guys listening who can just go, yep, I hear you. Very yeah. frustrating. So it, I think I'm, it is I'm, that thing about whenever things are going too well for you, try not to be too arrogant and take too much credit. And when things are going bad, try not to beat yourself up too much. Yeah, true. Not, All right, not, okay, okay not, I will. Not that you're in that position. I wasn't meaning to not imply that you were. No, not at all. I know that you nope. think that I am, but I'm not saying that. <laughs> no, 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 I get you. I'm just saying, uh, well, I, I, I have that problem with the, what I call the emotional roller coaster inside a job. You know, like we used to talk about this, John Montgomery and I, that you'd have this job that would be going really well. And on some days, that could be like a three-week project of mm. complicated posts. And mm. on some days, you'd be like, you know, lunchtime walking around the room going, oh, I'm a pagan god. And then on other days, you'd be like, I'm a complete fraud. <laughs> Just like yeah. ridiculous r- yeah. emotional roller coaster of... Yeah, I think we all have, you can all have, you can have that on set just from scene to scene, you know. Just trying to, one thing, you can just absolutely nail it. And the next one is like, oh my God, they finally worked it out. I don't know how to do this. Changing back or to... I finally worked it out. <laughs> changing back to the subject at hand. Coming up later the in podcast. the show, we have a Red Room. Who's in the Red Room this week, Jase? Uh, John Aitchison. Um, yes, John is a wildlife uh, cinematographer who's pretty much done every kind of beautiful Attenborough-esque um, nature wildlife documentary you can you can imagine, Frozen Planet and Planet Earth and uh, or the like, um, transitioning through you know film to uh, P two and onwards. So, uh, really interesting chat um, with someone who has a lot of patience, more patience than I. Yeah, so that's coming up later in the show. Um, right now, uh, just uh, check out some of the news. And, and Jason, you provocatively put um, something in the show notes as the first heading that I'm going to let you say because I just... Yep. Okay, update on Dragon Shipping. It's not. Okay, next item of the news. <laughs> Adobe. <laughs> Don't go backwards. Don't, never go back. Never go back. Um, um, okay, Adobe Premiere. Have you had a chance to get up with, to date with this update, Mike? I know you guys are pretty much Premiere there now, aren't you? Yeah, I've got to say, I want to send out a bit of a warning to people over updating to Maverick. Um, so, I, Yes, I had a little issue, but I think it's all mostly fixed now. But yeah, go yeah. ahead. Well, no, I just think that uh, I waited certainly a week or two before doing it and was quite conservative in doing it and mm. still got bitten on the arse. Um, my problem was with uh, Adobe and with... So Magic Bullet and with, uh, sorry, uh, not with Magic Bullet, with, um, uh, it's like the LUT buddy. Speed grade? Oh, no. Okay. no and um, also with Autodesk and with something else. So, like, you know, yeah. you know, I was literally going around looking at things. Going, well, it's been a week or two. And I checked yeah. in with John Montgomery. Yeah, John, did you, uh, you know, Maverick? Yep. He says, yep. Did you any problems? No. no. Okay, good. And I yep. looked around, sort of cursory glance of my friends and colleagues. No, no. I've waited a week. I've been very well behaved this time. Upgrade. And then immediately, like three people sort of like either emailed me or walked into my room going, hey, you haven't done a Maverick upgrade, have you? Because I'm having all these kind of problems with Adobe. Oh, you God. Assholes. Assholes. My problem yeah. was if I tried doing an import in Premiere, 
So imagine you're in Premiere and you right mouse click over your uh, bin and say, I want to put some footage. Up would pop the menu for your, in this my case, the desktop, and immediately go away again, like before you could select anything. <laughs> it's, like, right. it's here, but I'm not going to let you select anything. And uh, sure enough, within a day, we saw that that was a bug that Adobe had acknowledged. And um, then I found out that uh, LUT Buddy just wasn't working in that, which I use that a lot because of uh, how we set up things with uh, um, uh, LUTs on shitting on uh, SLRs. And then mm-hmm. I had another problem with Autodesk saying basically don't upgrade Smoke on Mac uh, to use uh, Mavericks because that's not something we recommend. So anyway, I have had real problems. Some workarounds, I mean, I've had to reinstall like umpteen bits of software and I'm still at a position where I'd prefer I hadn't upgraded. So look, I know John didn't have a problem and I know you had a minor problem. I didn't have any loss of data. I just had a loss of, well, hair and tolerance. <laughs> well, and you could open Premiere. I couldn't even, at least, at least on, on my MacBook Pro, no problem. That's fine. Uh, I haven't seen any issues, but on the Mac Pro, I could not open uh, Premiere Pro, would not open at all. And I could see a few people having this issue. Uh, but uh, w- weirdly, the fix was to change the like the language, like the language in the region of the Mac, to change it to U.S. English uh, and or Canada Canadian English or something to change it away from Australian English or British English. Um, so thus, there wasn't an awful lot of people out there having the same problem because uh, you know it, it wasn't happening in North America, so it didn't exist. Uh, now, where so, would you do that? Um, where would you do that? This is actually in system preferences. There's a thing for being American? Well, for, yeah, changing your, the native language or the keyboard, you know, you basically the keyboard formats and, you your know, region. punctuation and, you know, and right. uh, currency. So and under like language that. and region? Yeah, exactly. And then I changed it to, I think I tried a few combos, but basically it would not start, it would crash on launch. And, uh, yeah, literally going in and changing the, the native sort of, uh, it hasn't, I mean, I don't, I, I don't notice any difference having changed it from UK English to American English or whatever. Uh, so yeah, that, that, that definitely was, was a fix. And that, but you know, to Adobe's credit, they were pumping out updates literally hourly, um, to try and fix a few, a host of, a host of things. Uh, but I think this was all prior to, the uh, this October, the fairly big October release. Luckily, fairly, we didn't have this update and the whole uh, Mavericks pain in the ass. Otherwise, everyone would have hated this release. But uh, apart, regardless of that, this um, new release is a pretty is a reasonably major one. There's a fair few um, changes to uh, to Premiere Pro. Have you had a chance to get across the October release? I, I've got that. Though yes. my editing hasn't required me to use some of those features, so for example, no, no, same. the uh, you've got some new multi native dragon support. You haven't had a cho- <laughs> you haven't had a chance. You haven't had a a call for uh, native six k. How dragon? No, but, but, I, but I'm glad to see that it now supports. I don't see why you bollocks. would. I mean, it's only like I'm glad you were it's there. <laughs> supports digital bulk. It's not like now. you were there the first day buying your red one with. Uh, it's not like you have a low numbered. Uh, Epic or Epic M in any way whatsoever. There's no reason why you should be editing that kind of footage. By uh, sarcasm, my friend. It's just it's so like... Anyway, you go can, ahead. You can pull it off so well. I can't. Um, anyway, I, uh, I thought you'd go for the digital Bolex support, but no. Um, <laughs> no, I'm going to leave that one for a change. I guess um, the big thing for me is that uh, I do believe that Premiere is a really good way to go. I do like it. I, um, I was upset 
at a uh, few things in Maverick being just a bit more complicated than they should be. So I'm just sort mm. of warning people off. And I don't think you need to upgrade in that Maverick is so awesome that, you know, oh my God, I can't wait to upgrade. It's going to change my life forever. So I would hang off for a bit if you can. Yeah. Uh, and certainly not do it mid-project because that'll really screw you up as it did, yeah. as it did me. Just I'm sure out. this October release is not uh, Mavericks dependent and I'm sure you can bump up to this without having to be on Mavericks. Yeah. Um, I think a bigger uh, problem for most people with Adobe was the fact that they lost left under the sofa cushion 36 million <laughs> logins and stuff. That was kind of a Yeah, that's right. Way. 36 whatever million people's credit card details. Yeah, that was slightly yeah, more of Yeah, left it on the street, you know, whatever they did. Yeah. Have you got them? I thought you had them. No, no, I thought I left them over at Bob's place. Uh, Bob, have you got those 36 million? Did you see... I was Bob, who just got out of a Russian jail. Yeah. Have you seen the um, list of passwords, like the t- top password? They, <laughs> no. they, they They scraped... A whole bunch of these in... I, know, I was talking to John Mongrum about this, so I apologise if you've heard that podcast, but um, I'm going to say a Gizmodo or somebody like that, you know, Ars Technica, did a mm. scrape and check, you know, like a 6 million passwords. Like 1.9 million of them had the password 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, or 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Yeah. Just that was really funny. It's because like, that's, a, that's a far more complex password. Yeah. All those, <laughs> exactly. extra, all those extra digits. And all these ones like Adobe 1, 2, 3, and... Uh, and and I think the third rated password of all time was password. It's like, <laughs> yeah. just like you could go to any site and as long as you've got somebody's name, yeah, you could try these top it. 10 and you stood like literally about a one in six chance of getting in. Um, and, and it's so funny because uh, John Montgomery is very good at this stuff. So he's got like layer upon layer of like, you know, validation and stuff. And I'm like, well, that's really, really good. But I think you're like, talk about it being in the top 1%. <laughs> it's like, yeah, like, I think uh, there's His lower password hanging, goes up to 12. Lower hanging fruit for the, uh, for the hackers to get at. And, and I'm not being disrespectful to hackers. I'm just simply saying dis- disrespect for people that set up one, two, three, four, five, six as their password. It's not the yeah. cleverest thing in the world. But, but that being said, yeah. Adobe should not have uh, been a vulnerable position to lose because it undermines the cloud idea of their CC package, which is, of course, now their entire business model. So exactly, it's not exactly. a good idea. Exactly. It makes, uh, it's making uh, all the easier for uh, hackers to get the password. Now they're, now they're all just in the cloud. Now, tell but, me, uh, Canon's been releasing some... Well, I'm going back to this Premiere thing because a few oh. things that I thought was interesting. Being able to edit the settings of a sequence, literally, while, while you're in the sequence. Like, why couldn't we do that before? We never do that for 10 years with, with Final Cut Pro, literally. Like, if you've got a sequence there and you want to change it while you're, it's up and running, you, everything was greyed out. I mean, why, why we couldn't change that? So, yes, added cinema DNG. So that's like um, uh, like magic cameras, iconoscope, phantom, digital bolex, vice cam, indie cam. Uh, and but the, I think one of the big things, and something that at the moment I haven't really made much use of, because partly because it's been a bit of a pain, is the very, very easy now to bump your project straight into speed grade and back again. Mm, Massively true. easy now. That being Literally, said. like send project to speed grade. That being said, I don't use SpeedGrade. Do you? No, no, because no. To be honest, because it was <laughs> because it because it was too hard. A lot of the time, I've done. I like I like very simple tweaking tools like um, like looks. You know, where I can do it within the app I'm in. I don't have to export. Even even you know even I, I love Resolve, but even that sometimes a bit of a pain going out and having to 
you know, go in and out. And, and sometimes you go out and then you might want to go, oh, I just want to change something. And then you want to go back in. It's, it's quite a bit. It will be a glorious day when all of these apps and Resolve included will somehow make, let you be able to bump projects in and out, um, you know, without having, you know, non-destructively without having to completely export and import. You're literally just all opening the same thing. But, well, you know, dream, dream on. While you uh, are on the subject of Resolve, Resolve 10 is out, and uh, Resolve 10 from Blackmagic released yesterday, obviously the newest version. Um, it's now much easier to do, for example, DCP, which a lot of professionals uh, do. Also, it has OpenFX plugins, which is great. So it's the OpenFX, I think, is a really good sort of format for the plugins. Mm-hmm. It lets you do a bunch of stuff. Um, it's also uh, helped a lot with um, round-tripping with... Uh, NLEs and stuff and and, uh, and solving stuff and there's a bunch of stuff in there including um, uh, temporal uh, noise reduction which is good and new power windows and if you're interested in Resolve and I totally recommend this though I would say this I know but I actually really do recommend this um, uh, Warren uh, Eagles has a uh, Resolve fast forward training on 10 he's um, been on beta so he's kept this up to date and uh this is like you know all about 10 made mm. specifically for this release and that's over at uh, fxphd.com you don't have to join for the whole term this is something that's just like uh you can just buy resolve and that's it and if you buy resolve you get it immediately 100 percent downloaded uh bang and it's all over red rover well in the sense that you know you've got it to um to use and uh and to learn from and i've got to say warren's really good at uh, oh yeah he's fantastic he's a great teacher and uh, version 10 is, although it's, it's, uh, it's much improved, there's enough stuff changed to stump you. You know, there's enough sort of got, gotchas in a good way, I suppose. Things have changed for the better, but nonetheless changed. And it's a bit hard to, you know, it's good to get your head around what's changed and uh, how to do, um, you know, how to, how to do it the new way. Yeah, he's got a particularly good class on that on tracking. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, I think it's like class six. That's like 10 classes in all. Yeah. Just a bit of a plug for Warren, uh, my friend, over at fxphd.com. In fact, he's grading something for you right now, isn't he? Yes, he is. Thank you. He's doing it virtually, which is fantastic, because he's up in uh, Queensland grading a feature, so he's actually on the downtime able to, um, uh, you know, we sent him a file, uh, and then he can just literally, he doesn't need to send anything, any files back down. He can literally just um, export a, a project, and it can be opened here. So it's right. So the DPXs don't move, and the DPXs went up there on a drive. But all yes. that's happening is that he's sending down effectively the setup file trip. to hit render on a second set of DPXs that are mirroring it back down here. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to do that. You just have to get him the good the good footage to begin with. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. It can stay there. And yes, there's no point sending back stuff literally when you've got the same piece of software here and you can just get the project. Right, so now shall we Genius. flick over to the Canon USA uh, update for the C100? Yeah, C100. I know very little about this, but it's literally just come out today. I haven't had much to... I've had a play with the C100, and I think it's really nice ergonomically, and a lot of people like it, but um, they've I, just... I am not added... a fan of the C100. Yeah. It's... it's. Uh... I'm, not, I'm not saying it's a bad camera. I'm just yeah. saying that it's not enough in a particular direction to warrant me leaving a 5D Mark III and... Yes. It's, you know, like I, I know where it sits. I just feel like for some people it's be great. For me, I have no, you know, burning hole in my pocket feeling that I need to buy one tomorrow. Yeah, it's good for a lot of people. A lot of people do, you know, reality yep. TV 
um, you know, cooking shows, that kind of stuff. People love it, and docos and and uh, you know, wedding work and stuff is is nice. But uh, yeah, it's very much a um, an ergonomically improved seven D, I think, or it's it's for, it's it's probably closer to that kind of end of town than anything than anything else. And uh, you know, to that to that point, they've. Oh, added... I'm not saying it's a bad camera. It's just not. It doesn't set my afterburners alight. No, no, not at all. I don't go. No, oh my god, I can't wait to get a C100. Like mm. like I do about a digital Bolex. Yeah. Just burning a hole. Yeah. No, not at all. But uh, they've just added uh, what, something it did not have, which is uh, uh, autofocus, which is mm. uh, you know, something I don't really use. But a lot of people who do uh, a lot of that uh, kind of work I just mentioned would be very interested in having um, what looks like some quite good uh, focusing, dynamic focusing and, and focusing on the fly uh, abilities. I think it looks like this is actually a sensor swap because it's very much embedded because obviously you don't have... Um, you don't have, um, you know, a mirror, any mirrors in the way to be able to send it to any other sensors. The thing that is sensing focus is literally a part of, of the sensor, this dual pixel CMOS AF technology. So a certain part of the pixels literally are, are involved in, in... So it's a factory installed upgrade for that, uh, I believe, Jace. That's not something... Yes, you... it is. It looks like it's a sensor upgrade because it's literally... I mean, obviously, you don't have a mirror and stuff to do to be able to bounce the the, the uh, image onto fo- you know, focus sensors. Literally, part of the... The, the focus is being sensed on the actual sensor itself, part of this uh, dual pixel CMOS sensor. So literally part of part of the, the sensor is being used to, to detect the focus. Uh, so I can only imagine, I can only imagine it's a sensor swap. Uh, 500 bucks and that'll start in February. So yeah, if you've got one of these cameras, I'm sure that this will appeal. I was, Not to me. While we're talking about Canon cameras, I was with uh, a good friend of ours, Tom Gleason, DRP, just raving once again about the Canon sort of professional glass. Yes. Just yes, he has a set. Just well. loves it to death. At, at the price point, right? Terrific yeah, price point. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of lenses around about the same money or slightly more expensive that are. Yeah, I think it's very it's it's very affordable for ownership, not renting. You know, it's a very capable, beautifully beautifully made, sturdy, strong glass. It is. It probably shouldn't be much more money because it is, you know, it's AF mount. It's not, it's not, this is not, uh, this is not big cine PL glass that's for, you know, for bolting into a, um, uh, I don't know, an Alexa or whatever. It's dedicated to um, AF mount. So, yeah, I guess it's sort of, they're priced about, about right for that kind of thing. But they're beautifully made. Beautiful, but they're like 1.5 or something, aren't they? So yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they're really just nice. like, you know, they're just, you know, very slightly slow. Well, they're not slower. They're the same glass. It's T-stops versus F-stops. But they're, yeah. you know, the, the same essentially as the the L-glass. How are you um, finding your new equivalent. Canon SLR? Uh, the 1DC? Mm-hmm. Uh, good. Yeah, I like it. It's um, still 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 finding my feet with it it's good it feels very it feels it feels very nice in the hand it's obviously it's a bigger i find it the size of it is actually a plus it's just a really nice sturdy thing to have in your hand you really feel like you've got you've got a hold of a camera um it's much more stable to hold in a hand just by itself um it's uh i've mainly been using uh it to do 1080 uh, so which it'll do at 50, 60p. It'll do at 1080. It doesn't bump you down to 720p. Uh, it's a little cleaner, sharper, 
it's better in low light. Images are easier to lift them up and, and not get muddy and murky. Um, yeah, it's overall better than, than, than the 5D stuff, and it's full frame up until 4K when it drops down to APS-H, which is around about uh, dragon-sized sensor, so much, so bigger than bigger than Epic currently, or bigger than certainly bigger than Alexa and, and APS-C, but uh, not as big as full frame, somewhere in the middle, really, uh, if you're going to go full 4K. Um, but generally, I found that the the 1080 is is feels like it's a nice, good, true 1080, and you can blow that up a fair bit before you really start to really see any detail. But I think that's the nice thing about it as well. It's it's a very nice, sharp, clean, crisp image, and you can punch in on it a little bit. Obviously, not the same, not as much as if it was 5K and reframes like that. But uh, yeah, I like it. I like it so far. Battery life is really good. The batteries are you know quite big. Um, battery life forever. Uh, yeah, only have to you have to go back to CF cards, no SD cards. So, uh, and unless you are going 4K, you can stick with your standard, you know, the st- same cards you would have used for 5D. So you don't you're not being forced to have really expensive um, um, or more expensive high data rate CF cards to to go unless you want to go 4K. I um, you know, said I was shooting today with the Movi. One of the things mm, we're just mm, testing mm. with the Movi is uh, doing a handoff shot. And it's just funny you mentioned that about the weight because one of the guys was saying, you know, just trying to do a handoff on a shot of a camera that isn't in a rig is yeah. just, I mean, forget anything to do with the movie, which is, by the way, awesome and really interesting. Um, interesting, more interesting than you'd think and more curiously complex than you'd think, but I'll come back to that. But anyway, the point is any camera in a rig like that, as you say, the weight of it actually works in your favor for like a more stable sort of the momentum of it in its own inertia tends to make the shot simpler. We tried repeating a shot with a camera that was just like an SLR compared to an Epic yeah. and a Movi, and it was just all over the shot. You just couldn't, you know, possibly keep it sort yeah. of Yeah, stabilised. Handovers, yeah. handovers are astoundingly seamless. When you see them happening, you think, ooh, that's, that's messy. But uh, on, on camera, they are... <laughs> Nine times out of ten, they're pretty smooth. We're, we're doing the Movi stuff for the uh, DOP course on moving the camera over at PhD. Oh, yes, right. Cool. cool and we've yes. got a bunch of Movies and, and Movi-like rigs that we're testing and, and mucking around with. But we've got three of the rigs. Um, yeah. But rather than just repeat all the stuff that's going to be in that, um, there's just one aspect about it that I thought was kind of interesting, which I hadn't, as soon as I say it, you'll say, well, obviously. But being somebody that's had a steady cam for the last few years, um, the Steadicam is very good at taking out a vertical bump because, you know, your body goes up and down and the camera has a kind of its own inertia because of the springs and yes. doesn't. The thing about the Movi is it's the one thing that it doesn't take out is the vertical bump. Right, So you've right, got these right. shots. I was running around, literally running around the rocks at uh, Bondi with it and you can't help but go up and down when you're running. As you know, like it's just impossible to... Partly because it's heavy and it's not... Yeah, you know, there's nothing taking the weight. You know, um, I mean, my arms rating no... is a bit like shock absorbers, but yeah, you're yeah. right. And so, yeah. so even though it's smoothed out and it doesn't go left or right, doesn't um, like Dutch and it doesn't uh, you know drift left and right, as, as in a pan, mm. it does still go up and down <laughs> because there's yeah, just no absolutely. way. To, there's yeah. nothing to take that out. So yeah. you get this curiously interesting. It feels very. I actually don't think it's a bad thing. It, it has a feeling that makes it feel handheld when it completely isn't it's like a uh you know a masterful perception of what you imagine a handheld would be without being in any way handheld well i guess it is handheld but you know i mean it's not yeah no it's it's a different it's a different look isn't it it's very interesting and i gotta say actually 
because the last time I'd seen a movie was uh, at NAB, and that was a prototype, and I somewhat poo-pooed it being very expensive for what seemed like a lot of off-the-shelf quadcopter, octocopter uh, rigs, you know, which they had made a lot of and were, were beautiful, but nonetheless, it was uh, seemed like a really expensive um, uh, adaptation of, of that tech. And uh, I'll tell you, seeing seeing the the, the final um, the final production version of the movie. It is very, imp- very, very impressively made, and they've simpl- simplified an awful lot of it. And a lot of it is toolless because a lot of it, about, a lot about getting the movie to work right, is balance, like a steady cam. You got to because the motors are. You don't want the motors to be working uh, too hard. Everything has to be uh, in a gimbal. It all has to be like pretty much zero g. It has to be all you know. Center of gravity has to be perfect. Up, down, left, right, forward, back for it to literally just hang there beautifully and, and just stay wherever you put it before you turn the thing on. So all that, making that all toolless is beautiful. The, the, way it's, the way it's adjustable and it's really stripped down very lightweight compared to some of the fake uh, Fovey stuff that we, we have around at the moment that uh, we've been tinkering with. Uh, it's, uh, they, it's very, uh, anyway, very, very impressed with, with the build and they've, they've done some, a lot of in-house proprietary stuff and a lot of, they've taken a lot of the pain out of it for a lot of people and uh, distilled it down to even the software, you know, if you look at off the shelf, the, the open source software that is involved in a lot of the other quadcopter stuff is an absolute dark art pain in the ass to, to get right. And to, it's a real, it's a real delicate recipe to get right and um they they have distilled the the movie controls down to the very simplest um you know from 90 getting it from 90 percent great to 100 percent great versus getting it anywhere near good so full full marks to those guys it's uh impressive it is expensive but i think it's not the 15 grand they originally the price they originally pitched at uh nab it's now under 10 i think so it's getting getting uh, towards very very affordable given the fact that the level of pain that you will experience in anything that uh, they haven't made uh, is well, well worth spending the money yeah it's funny that isn't it it's uh it, i mean i totally agree with you in the sense that your initial reaction might be um and look I, if you're into octocopters and you've done all that kind of stuff you'll have a ball making your mm. own i mean mm. we had a mm. ball making mm. our own mm. but then <laughs> you know, if you're like walking in off the street as a experienced DOP who wants something to work, you're going to have enough trouble anyway trying to get your head around this sucker. You don't. Yeah, or you're going to rent anyway. yourself out as someone to who's going to bring this stuff to set. You know, you're going to be very embarrassed if it doesn't uh, if it doesn't work first time every time. Yeah, yeah. I've got to say, it's it's really kind of curious what it does in mm. that. Um, so the, the, there's a mode where if I move the rig quickly, it will slowly pan around. It's called majestic mode. So if that makes mm. sense, I do a quick pan. And instead of quickly whipping around, it does turn where I want it to be. It doesn't try staying straight ahead, but it you know sort of smooths that out, which is all very well, except for if, you, if you're actually going to want to move the camera around, you almost have to pre-move it to when you want it to be because there's going to be a lag between you doing it and it catching up. And then the That's other when problem, you want to go to second operator mode where you literally do go wireless yeah, and you're not being the person you, doing the framing. No? Yeah, no, you say that, but we did a shot today where we were trying to do that mm. and getting second operator to do that was like really hard. I mean, mm-hmm. you way need to have um, a monitor feed to the, the second operator yep. and uh, and you need to have them 
very experienced at what they're doing. I found the controls uh, were workable, but quite mm. quite touchy. Um, yeah. And yeah, there's this lag thing. It's just I can't describe it any other way. It's just a timing thing. Just trying to get it. It's it's you know when you ri- drive a really good car, it feels really direct, and then you mm-hmm. drive a really crappy car, and it just feels kind of like you're almost turning the wheel, and then the car turns. And magnify that ten times, and that's what you've got. I'm not saying it's a fault with the product. I'm just saying it's a different way of working, and it does take quite a lot of getting used to. Yeah, it's not for everything. You know, Steadicam still has a lot of place in a lot of in a lot of uh, situations, but. Uh, there's some very impressive um, stuff that it can do that you just literally can't do with Steadicam, and that's that's. But apply it, apply it um, very minimally and sparingly, and plan things. I think is the, is the trick. Don't sort of aim to do an entire show on it because it's you think it's going to easy and fun and going to save a lot of time like Steadicam can. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Somebody was saying there was an article in the American Cinematographer uh, that had been written by Gareth, who invented Steadicam, saying that, that the way that Steadicam was used and what it really was was something that wasn't fully appreciated when they first kind of, um, you know, sort of released it into the wild. It right. took a while to kind of be the thing that, um, that uh, you know, that was. And I guess my point here is that I think that's the case with this. Like it's... You think you know what it is, and then you start using it, and you start questioning. Um, I mean, apart from anything else, it's quite heavy. Even though it's very light, it's not taking the transfer weight on your body the way a steady that is, cam is. Yeah, that's it's the first thing you notice, really, isn't it? When you first pick one up, you go, hmm, yes, yeah, heavy. Well, I think the first thing you notice is that it's light because it looks heavier than it's going to be. And then yes. five minutes later, you say it's actually quite heavy. Mm, heavy, um, yeah. It's like picking <laughs> you know I mean? up a Steadicam without a vest and an, an arm and going, gee, a vest and an arm would be really good around now. I can carry the Steadicam around just holding the, the, the gimbal post for a little moment and, you know, just rough out a shot. But, uh, you know, very shortly you're going to go, hmm, yeah. I mean, the um, Easy Rig is an excellent uh, add-on for that. Um, yeah, an easy very, very, rig. Very, very good to have the easy rig yeah. and then to support take this take the weight of that. Um, that probably won't help you necessarily with that elevation changes that you're talking about. Uh, maybe or, you know if there's some way of mounting it on a steady cam arm as well. We did super low mo like skimming across dog cam about an inch mm. off the deck and it was mm. spectacular. Anyway, yeah, you can well, see all, all the weights down there. You're not having to lift it above yeah. your you know, yeah up to eye height. That is one thing I think with 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 the Moby is that it's sort of. I out I, a lot of it because that's the natural height that you hold it is sort of chest height, chest height. Below, exactly. below eye saying, line. Yeah. So you're going to see an awful lot of that. You really have to. A lot of our um, rushers have you, chest shots. <laughs> yeah, you really have to switch on those abs to get the height, get the eye line, um, uh, the higher, more normal, natural eye line height um, uh, out of that thing. Because yeah, it's it's you really got to push it to get it up there and keep it up there. Anyway. Uh, anyway. The Good fun. <laughs> the results or the the in depth look at that, including in fact a bunch of stuff we did with um, uh, really interesting stuff we did with uh, building this uh, this rig that isn't a movie but looks exactly like one. Uh, but I would say you know uses different software, but parts machined from our own CAD designs in China and stuff. Uh, all of that's uh, happening over in uh, FX PhD in the DOP course with uh, with Ben Allen. Hey, excellent. Um, so going back to cool bits and stuff and switching gears. Well, can I switch gear to something that's actually not on the uh, foolishly emi- em- emitted? Yeah, I just the, did the, the best segue ever. 
to your and I just completely, head. I'm completely. Oh, that. Okay. So you're switching gears. Oh yes, very nice, simulator. very nice, and I smoothly picked up on that. Okay, Thank good. you. We are just um, like the two Ronnies. <laughs> well, I'm hoping this. I'm hoping this actually gets um, gets picked up. It's kind of a Kickstarter, but it's not. Um, it's called the Hurricane Wheels. Now, this is actually a gearhead simulator because it's very hard to sort of. I, I mean, gear, gearhead is not dead. There's the, you know, um, a lot of remote heads. A lot of wireless gear, a lot of a lot of uh, rigs and um, chopper rigs and things. All still use uh, wheels in, for um, or give you a wheeled option, and it's a very much nicer option. But learning it and getting good with it without actually having to be on set doing it is very hard. And someone's cleverly came up with, uh, I guess, essentially like the the um, the geared head uh, version of like you know like a um, flight simulator, I guess. Uh, the Gearhead Simulator, uh, it is, at the moment, it's in prototype form and they're hoping to get um, enough um, traction. Uh, it's essentially almost like a Kickstarter thing to be able to launch the thing. But the key, obviously, with all of this is is in the software and very clever software. There's a link in the show notes, I'm sure, if you Google Hurricane Hurricane Wheels Gearhead Simulator, you'll see his um, you know, his pitch video, I guess, which shows the, the simulator, which is very clever. It actually has a lot of, um, like, literally random, uh, like, people running on a soccer field or just people walking around an open 360-degree environment. And they are, you know, literally random, um, random, random animations. And you literally follow with the wheels, basically, the little encoders that plug in, I guess, via USB. And you can change the screen ratio and your lens size and all of the sort of essentially camera controls that would give you, that would um, really, really help train you to, to, to use wheels. It's one of those things that once you've done it and once you're up to speed with it, it's literally, it's, it's not a cliche to say that it is like, for, like, like riding a bike. Once you've done it, it becomes, and you step back into it, it's the most comfortable, natural um, thing. Literally does feel like jumping on a bike, and you, you, know, you don't have to relearn how to, to do it, really. It's very, you feel very, I do anyway, you feel very at home uh, when, you, when you're there in front, of, in front of wheels. But you have to, getting past that, getting to that point initially is, is a tricky one, and not having to have a camera and a lens and go and, drive to a uh, rental house it would be great i mean it'd be good to have i mean maybe something like a uh, a cinematographer society they should buy one of these i think this is something like like the acs or whatever or uh, asc etc do you be think it's going to be these kinds of things do you think it's going to be popular so, enough to get funded i mean i think it needs i don't know 13, it does yeah euros. i think yeah they do i mean they don't cost that i think they're under a grand for a set oh yeah, yeah. doing beautifully machined wheels and the software and everything but it's, uh, it seems like I, a training exercise that yeah, I think hopefully if he keeps it open ended, if it's don't give yourself a deadline, or if you really, I think it needs time to get a bit of groundswell. I think like university or, or film schools, or or um, as I say, cinematographer societies. This is the kind of thing it'd be fantastic to have in their clubhouses for people to come and train and learn. Um, I'm not, not that there's I'm not, not a dearth. Of, I'm just wondering of, if there's going to be enough yeah. of those people. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I I do worry that it's not going to get. Um, uh, that it's not going to get get funded. I'd love. I'm just trying to think of the kind it's of people just that started, get behind it? it. Yeah, I don't think it's. I don't think it's. It's that. I don't think it's been going that long. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me, but um, uh, it's very interesting. Very worth well worth a look. Uh, I don't know. He's got 53 days to go, and he's only got a couple of supporters. 
um, and I think it's like five or I think it's five hundred or so euro to get behind it, and he needs a hundred, and I think he needs. Twelve thousand five hundred euro. Right. Okay. I I'm yeah. I'm, no, he's I, only they got get it. It just doesn't yeah. feel like they will. No, no, absolutely. No, no. He oh. needs twelve and a half grand, and he's got less than a grand. Fifty three days to go. So hopefully, maybe there'll be a bit of a groundswell, or if he can keep it a bit more open ended, and uh, maybe try and get his money a different way, perhaps. But uh, that's not an awful lot of money to try and to try and get together to to do this. I think it's something a very worthy, uh, a very worthy worthy project and definitely I'd say the video is well worth a look because it's very clever and it gears gear gear and wheels are not um are not dead and should not die they are a very very valid and not old hat way of, of of operating the camera every once in a while you will come up against wheels and get you don't want to go oh shit you turn up and you're operating a you know operating a crane and the only way of operating it is those two wheels yeah yeah start next dot de yeah, so I do, I do, I do like this very impressive, impressive idea. Yeah. Uh, so what I was going to my before I tromp, trampled on your beautiful segue, uh, the Sony A7 and the Sony A7R are very interesting. I have pre-ordered uh, these cameras, a, one of them. I've pre-ordered the the A7R. This is a new full-frame video-capable alpha. Essentially, it's an, an, an NEX camera, any an alpha, an E mount, uh, but it is full frame and uh, looks like it has reasonably capable video, pop, video, um, uh, video. From what I've seen, looks nice. Uh, has a, you know, a, a a lot of the technology from the more expensive alpha cameras uh, and in something that's closer to the form factor of the NEXs. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, really interesting. Some of the imagery that I've seen is beautiful. The the E mount is quite a flexible mount. Uh, it, weirdly, Sony with their choice of mount, even though everyone would love to have to be able to choose a Canon mount or something else other than Sony's Stroke Minolta mount. By m- by making cameras that people want, but not necessarily a mount that people have. Uh, this is the the truest form of you know the life will find a way. Uh, the internet and eBay is and Metabones catalog is full of lens adapters because it's quite a short mirrorless uh, gate depth or flange depth uh, leaves it open to for a plethora of of mount adapters. Be it um, obviously Canon, um, Leica, Leica M, Leica. Uh, I don't like our R's, but there's plenty of there's plenty of options for uh, alternate lenses and, and Nikon, uh, old old style Canon, new style Canon EF. Um, yeah, I think it could be a really nice little uh, or a very uh, if nothing else, just from a stills point of view, a really nice sort of cheaper full frame, small compact alternative to something like a, a Leica M8. Uh, very nice. So it should be very interesting. Unfortunately, you know this AVC HD, this this sort of annoying codec that they have, which is can be good and can be bad. It very seems to be not necessarily dependent on the bit rate. It seems to be quite dependent on the camera. Some cameras do amazing things with this uh, this codec, and others not so much. It seems to depend on on the camera and how it's getting those right bits happening not the not the bit rate itself um 
yeah, it, uh, but what we've seen so far from tests and samples is that it's uh, very, very cool. Uh, there's the A7 and the A7R. There's not an awful lot of difference from the video mode between the two because uh, most of it is in, is in the sensor size, which is probably more applicable to stills. Uh, the A7R doesn't have the uh, anti-aliasing filter, so uh, I think, um, A, you're going to cop some aliasing perhaps, but also uh, maybe be slightly sharper and, yeah... Uh, it's a bit of a toss-up if you're only going to mainly going to use it for video, which one to get. But um, yeah, I think it'll be. I'm hoping for good things. Yeah, yeah. Well, Expensive, but uh, yeah, but good. So uh, another thing that you found, I don't know where you found this one from, but I was just uh, kind of impressed. But you might even have to explain it to me. It's the um, the Gravity One. Oh yeah, Gravity One. Okay. Now, so this is this, is this actually a gyro no no it is i guess you could call it like a passive gimbal it's literally like a what they might call a gravity head or a uh, zero a zero g head uh which basically means the camera's hanging in in its in its um center of gravity so it um i mean they make they have made like fluid head versions of this for like tabletop work or uh crane crane you know crane crane kind of miniature work um, where the camera is basically suspended from from a top point and so, is hanging and is hanging in balance. So yeah, I was going to say you, you can tilt down or it. tilt up, and it's yeah, it's basically it's almost like half of a gimbal. It's like a ninety degree arc where it's it's basically can do pan, um, pan, and I guess can also do roll. Now this, this is designed, this is designed mainly the designed. The, sorry, the uh, epic. This is not. For no, no, it's designed for a lot of things. You can put red one. You can put Alexa. You can put a lot of cameras in here. It's oh, designed really? to. The main thing it's designed for is, and really the proof in the pudding, and, and what makes the, the the penny drop is going to flowcine's dot com. Go to their website and see their demo video, which shows uh, the main use for this rig, which is to be to go on a um, uh, uh, easy rig. So to hang from ah. a central cable point, right? And the main idea is if you're hanging a camera from a central cable point and if you're just literally in a normal um, uh, um, normal rig, you know, if you want to tilt up or tilt down, you are kind of fighting your center of gravity and the camera will always want to force its way up. Uh, and also if you're running, you are very much at the mercy of, of uh, a little bit of uh, interference from, you know, the cable movement. Now the idea of this is for easy rig you can hang this in this gimbal and it lets you correct things or dutch things or pan and tilt and still say without you're not really fighting gives you a reasonable pan and tilt or gives you lots of pan range but gives you tilt and roll range without fighting the cable um, point from above because it's always straight above you regardless of where you move the camera so you're not fighting that thing that's and you can again look on the demo video being able to run with this thing and takes out a lot of the uh the, the fast a lot of the sort of movement that that can be induced uh, with an easy rig or similar so yeah well worth a look and if you've got an easy rig or you're doing a lot of easy rig operation it's this is a beautifully machined piece of kit these guys have really thought this through and have made it flexible for a lot of cameras how much are we talking um, about uh, it's it's a couple of grand euro. It was a Kickstarter thing. I think an early Kickstarter adopters got it for maybe sixteen hundred or so, and I think now it uh, at least through Europe it's going for about two and a half thousand euro, 
weighs about adds adds about another two kilos, maybe one point eight kilos to the uh, weight of the camera, which obviously is all taken in part of the, the Easy Rig. But if you use Easy Rigs a lot, this is something you definitely you, know, you probably already know about it. To be honest, if you're a part of the Easy Rig um, community? community, I guess. Yes, yeah, it's very interesting. And again, beautifully made. And uh, so I'm seeing it at. Actually, Lee Mac is a reseller here in in Australia. Apparently, yeah, I've yet to see one in the flesh, but because uh, they, I think they're an Easy Rig reseller here in Sydney too. Yeah, uh-huh. so that kind of makes sense if they sell Easy Rigs to to sell this kit. Again, it's a lesson in how to beautifully design something. And, uh, I, I don't yeah. mean to be rude or anything, but mm-hmm, I don't know but that I'd... the guys actually proofed their website particularly well, as it claims that it weighs one point eight grams. Oh wow. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's how it feels like it weighs 1.8 okay. grams. Okay, good. Supports cameras up to 17 kilos, but weighs just 1.8 grams. That's the, that's the true magic here. In fact, they've got that twice on their website. It makes, so, it, yeah. makes a 17 kilo camera feel like it only weighs it's a gram or two. Eight grams, Impressive. yeah. But it, Impressive. But I'm presuming that's like 1.8, I don't know what that is. Again. Yeah, it's, it's 1,800 grams. 1.8 kilograms, that's pretty heavy. It is, but again, this whole thing is being suspended off your back. You know? right. So it's it's for what it's. I think the gain uh, is 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 greater than the the loss, if you know what I mean. I think what you're gaining in terms of maneuverability and stability, uh, it's it's worth the extra couple of kilos, which you're probably not going to feel as much if it's on. You know, if you're hand carrying the whole thing. I also the other thing is that because it's essentially the the the, the, the pickup point on the top is kind of like a carry handle. You're not restricted to use this as a um, uh, in an easy rig. You literally could just run with the thing. And again, this is not uh, an active gimbal. It's no batteries. Although I think they are talking about that as being an option at the moment. This is a very much passive and just relies on physics and inertia to uh, keep this thing stable. So interesting. Anyway, I thought it was worth 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 a look. Yeah, no, definitely. Physics it's, at work. it's quite fascinating, actually. I just yeah. Uh, Again, I, until you see the video and you go, oh right, yeah, I can see if you were using an easy rig that uh, tying everything from the top all the time is uh, you know quite restrictive, particularly if you want to. It's okay if you want to just look forward all the time, but you know, yeah, you look I mean, up, we, you want to look down, you want to Dutch it, you're fighting. Yeah. So easy rig itself, which is kind of relevant, obviously, for both of the things we've been talking about, for this and for the uh, the movie, though, obviously not the movie in low mode. Mm. Um, uh, I mean that itself is going to set you back about what thirteen hundred to three thousand something like that, right? An e- an easy rig, yeah, yeah, yeah. N- n- not cheap. Yeah, depending absolutely. on what size one you get. Yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah I don't like I, I like the effect that an easy rig has in terms of obviously taking the weight. Yeah. I don't find them particularly fun to walk around in. Oh no, no, God no! This is the kind of thing you want to give to someone else to do. <laughs> <laughs> like how you say um, that? Oh God, no, no, no! You wouldn't want oh, to wear God, one. Oh God, no! You never God, operate sorry. one. This is for someone else. This yeah. is for oh, this is for operators that this is their job. You know, you this is a, people you who. Be a director you're doing, by any chance, would you? <laughs> exactly. But if you're like a reality TV guy, or if you're doing long form, or you know, you're in it all the time. This is uh, this is what the, you know. This this is this is a lifesaver. This is your day to day. You know, um, if you've got a really heavy rig and you've got a, and the director wants handheld, and it doesn't really doesn't restrict the. A lot of times, the faux handheld rigs sometimes really kill the whole handheld look. And by saving someone's back, you've ended up with a look that doesn't look like what the director's intending. But this can kind of do that. It still does feel very much 
like the camera is on on a shoulder but without the the pain if this is your day-to-day job eight hour 10 12 whatever 14 hours a day then you already know this is good and you're already happy to be in it i don't i don't personally enjoy it but um you know it's definitely a choice and i think and i think i've heard it called i think paul schneider calls it i think it's called the humiliator (laughs) <laughs> you look like a complete knob and you're sort of strapped in there and it's pretty hard to move and, and stuff but it, it, it you know it does it does the intended job really well uh, <laughs> I think on that note we should change over to the Red Room and uh, yes. and John in the Red Room do you want to set this up for us because you uh, did this interview with uh, John and, and I must say I'm really glad to have uh, somebody that's got such a strong documentarian uh, outlook on the show yeah, I think what uh, I first came across John on Twitter. Actually, he is um, he is uh, manic Twitter, which is fantastic, and he is uh, equally busy in in the shooting department. He never stops and has got uh, uh, credits that you just you know are very very envious. As I say, things like um, Blue Planet and a lot a lot of the um, uh, David Attenborough style things and um, Frozen Planet. And um, and a lot of uh, a new one at the moment is called Hebrides, which is the you know the island islands in um, in, in the United Kingdom, which I think is going to get a name a name change for screening outside of uh, outside outside of outside of UK and Europe. Um, and uh, yeah, he's has a massive a massive list of credits, and um, it's a pleasure to speak to someone to someone who's got. Um, uh, such experience in the outside world and long form. I think I really wanted to speak to him about long form projects and um, uh, how you how you treat something. That, I mean, I'm so used to doing things that you know, two three weeks and you're done. His his are months, eighteen months, two years, three years, four years long ongoing projects, returning to the same place um, throughout the seasons. So yeah, I wanted to yeah chat with him. You are entering the Red Room. Well, thanks, John, for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm surprised, actually, that you're, like, in the country, so to speak, or you're not actually out somewhere, given that you probably spend uh, a vast amount of time uh, away from home. I spend about half my my year away from home, usually. Um, But away from home can be just around the corner. It can even be in the garden, which is what I was filming from most recently um but it could be antarctica i mean it's it's a bit random what happens really um, so yeah i was filming swallows which are just about to migrate so they, they actually were in the garden literally just for fun uh, no it was for a bbc series called autumn watch which is a, a bit of a fixture on on the television here it's a it's a mostly live show but they do some pre-records um and what's really nice about it is because it's a it's sort of rolling thing that's been going for years and it's a magazine format show with several presenters and they can self-commission short films. So unusually for the BBC, because you don't get to make short films really for British television. They, uh, they get people to do their own programs. So they come and say, I've got any ideas. This one's, um, you know, we're looking at at the moment this autumn, um, other things that you'd like to make a film about. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's lovely, you know, because it can be quite, it doesn't have to be very, literal doesn't have to be it can be quite artistic it can be quite poetic it, you, know, yeah. you can do the words for it it's it's lovely it's a nice um, unusual little genre 
Well, there's a lot of those uh, smaller shows that haven't screened uh, widely outside of UK. Uh, there's mm. a lot of your work, of course, that would have, uh, especially things like Frozen Planet uh, and Life that would oh, definitely most most people listening would, would have would have seen. Those mm. are significantly larger projects than uh, just heading down to the bottom of the garden. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess talk us through things. for a lot of people who you know are used to maybe doing projects that are one, two, three months at a time, or even mm-hmm. just two or three weeks. I find I personally find it just I cannot get my head around a project that would basically span a year or hund in the hundreds of days. How yeah. do you how do you even think about approaching a project that 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 goes that long? Well, those are those are both of those were BBC series. They they typically the really big ones like that would take maybe three years in the making, perhaps longer. Um, the first year nearly of which is preparation, or perhaps nine months, and there's a lot of editing on the end as well. But the filming was, as you said, for, for Frozen Planet, was spread over a couple of years. I think there were three, was it three winters or three summers? I can't remember, but it was it was kind of two and a bit years. Um, the logistics on that one were interesting because it was pretty clear when the filming was going to have to be in the northern and southern hemispheres because the polar environment doesn't really let you in much in the winter Mm. um so unusually we were we were quite clear quite a long way ahead when most of the shoots would be um pretty much a year ahead and i committed to to doing mostly that for the for the two years that it was going on um and i did nine shoots so they're quite long shoots because they they tend to be logistically challenging. You've got a long way to go, and it's perhaps boats that you're travelling on and so on to South Georgia or the Antarctic Peninsula um, and around Svalbard. I spent a couple of summers, uh, Julys really, in Svalbard, in um, which is Arctic Norway. Um, and those chunky shoots like that have to be planned. There are there are ships to organise and so on, and flights and lots of logistics on the ground. So they're they're very tightly very extremely well organized really by by the BBC who are very experienced at that um so that was quite nice because it meant I knew when I'd be away and I knew when I'd be at home uh which which is one of the frustrations otherwise if things change and you mm. you know I find it's difficult if I if I don't know quite when I'm going to be around it still is a very you know long stretch to, to shoot for and uh, mm. I mean uh, I've only I, I I think you know clearly the the, the frustrations would be I guess there's a lot of waiting. Yes, with wildlife filming, there is a lot of waiting. Um, it's never boring waiting, or at least I don't find it is. It's not like, I suppose, being on a set or something when every, you've done everything you can and you're just waiting for somebody else to finish their job so you can start doing yours. Mm. It's not like that at all. It's much more um, like going somewhere that you'd really like to go anyway and then watching what's going on there while you wait for the thing that you've been asked to film to happen. Um, and since those places are so interesting, there's always lots going on or interesting things to look at or the, you know, in the Arctic, the light's amazing or even the lichens on the rocks are different and look fascinating. So although it may not be what you're actually intending to film, it's always an interesting experience. And, and actually the people that you end up working with that either we go with or who, who are there helping or field assistants or whatever are genuinely, um, fascinating people. So, um, it, it really genuinely is not dull. I, I don't think I've been been bored um, waiting ever, really, wildlife yeah. filming. 
So I, I might jump to. I mean, it's really hard to sort of pick a um, uh, to pick a project to sort of talk about, say, gear with, because you've mm. done such a, a broad uh, scope of environments and and uh, and light and and uh, and content. But I'm going mm. to stick with the frozen planet. Okay. sort of thing because it's um, uh, probably maybe you can disagree it's probably the most challenging especially for gear yeah I think in terms of what I do it, it is anyway because what I do is mostly I don't do underwater except with cameras on poles and things mm. I mostly do long lens topside filming so um, uh, things that are far away and um, then of course yes the environment makes a difference It is it is difficult if it's cold much more difficult yeah so talk about i guess uh and it's obviously goes back to pre-production choosing the gear and take take us take us through what you would have uh, shot with generally for say frozen planet and how and the pre-production of of deciding what what to take yes we've got to sort of spool back a wee bit because that was frozen planet was on in this country i suppose at least two years ago Mm. and if you allow it to have had say three three and a half years in four years um, gestation from when they were first thinking about what, what cameras to use. That was back in the, the days of um, tape fairy cams. So I know that at the point, it's the Panasonic fairy cams which shoot slow motion, which is critical to wildlife filming, really. It's all always needing slow motion. Yeah. Um, so I know that they just missed and were, were sad about it, just missed the chance to use the um, solid state P2 fairy cams which were coming in at that point Um, but they they were just a little bit too late and having started on the tape ones and the workflow was all there for the tape ones and they'd committed money to that and not to other stuff then the BBC owned the cameras in that case Um, it was too late to change horses part way so they didn't Um, subsequently that's what I have been using and and now those are being phased out too so it's just extraordinary how fast things change at the moment um, but the majority of my filming, anyway, was done on on tape of Panasonic Vericams. So how does it... Uh, I mean, obviously, you're talking, going to some... Uh, I'm sure anyone who's seen the series... Well, there is some extremes of weather. I mean, I don't know... Mm. I, 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 just just in just mild moisture, I struggle just, you know, keeping a, <laughs> keeping a lens clean, yeah. you know, working with gloves, uh, let alone wind and, and blizzard and horizontal sleet. And, and I don't, yeah. how do you... Uh, I've often been fascinated how you even... How you just get up and do it, Make it day work. after day you know and how to just yeah physically achieve anything actually walk come home at the end of the day with something in the can it's quite it's different depending on on the exact conditions really i, I actually did quite a lot at sea and that's different again there's salt spray and so on but not so cold um i did some cold filming some very cold filming but not as much as people who were out in the winter did i didn't actually do any winter shoots in the Arctic or Antarctic for Frozen Planet. And and then it's it's kind of different. Again, the cameras actually bear up quite well as long as you keep the batteries warm and the viewfinders to some extent if they're liquid crystal viewfinders. But the um, the lenses and things need um, the lubrication changed sometimes if it's going to be really cold because the greases start to really thicken up. You can replace lubricants with graphite if you, if you know that you're going to be filming very sub-zero. Right. And things like cables become awkward as well because they... The plastic um, insulation on on cables cracks below, I think about minus thirty, and you, you find you can't bend them any longer. And then when you do, they shatter. The plastic shatters. 
So there are rubberized cables you can get which can cope with much colder temperatures. But I didn't have to do any of that. Um, the coldest that we got to was about minus 20 um, centigrade. And then mm -hmm. with the wind chill, it's colder for skin, but it doesn't make that much difference to equipment. Right, so, we so wind chill doesn't affect parts. gear as much as it does as your much. own no. um, morale. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yes. And it's uh, you do have to be very careful about not getting frostbitten if it's windy, and particularly if you're traveling on a skidoo or something, and you, you leave a little gap between your goggles and your, and your balaclava or whatever, and mm. the wind really bites at those bits. So those are... Those are things to think about, but they're they're not insurmountable, and it's not like loads of people haven't already dealt with that and solved those problems. And the coldest that I was, we did a training course at the beginning in Svalbard in the winter. That was very cold. And in the um, southern summer, I went to where the emperor penguins live mm -hmm. um, in the Ross Sea, which is quite near the American base on um, Ross Island there. Um, it's not very near. It's a couple of hundred miles away, but we but we camped on the sea ice. And that was that was sort of minus twenty-ish most of the time. If it was sunny, it was quite pleasant. You could take your outer thick layers of gloves off and just have thin gloves. And if it was windy, it got really quite cold. But the cameras were fine in that. They didn't really need any special protection at all. Um, I took the batteries off, plugged the batteries into a. Uh, they were V-lock batteries. I plugged them into a, a V-lock block and then ran a, a XLR cable back to the camera. Kept the batteries inside my coat, um, and that was it really. And then it's just protecting things physically. So I had bags and stuff that I'd put the camera in when I was using it quite often just to keep blowing snow or mm. if it was a bit warmer than that, then sleet and things off it. But usually it's it's just a physical barrier, really. Um, and if it gets absolutely horrendous, then you can't face into the wind and things like that. But it's it's more keeping going for a long period than, than um, doing anything special with a camera. Yeah. So uh, you also shot with I did a lot, a lot some high speed beyond the the, um, the very cams ability. You yes. uh, also do. Uh, were you using phantoms or what were you using? Yeah, for high speed. Yeah, we used. Um, I used a phantom quite a lot. We this had is a not a gold. camera that I would love to take into like an Arctic environment. I don't think. <laughs> well, the, the hardest time for the phantom actually um, was on a beach because not not all the frozen planet was filmed within the two Arctic and antarctic circles you know it wasn't um it wasn't always fully polar and one of the one of the stories was about gen 2 penguins which live in the falkland islands they live in other places as well and they do live in the antarctic too but they they are quite accessible in the falklands and mm -hmm. there's quite an interesting story about sea lions trying to catch them there and the the um, point in the program then was talking about how productive the southern ocean is which is which is what they're fishing in so we went to film them there, but it um, was extremely windy. It was a sandy beach. And it was very, very windy on some occasions. And um, the Phantom takes a lot of power. Um, and we had quite large batteries, quite sort of heavy-duty batteries with handles on them and an XLR plugging in and a cable plugging into the camera. And um, it was so blowy on that beach, which looked amazing because the waves were fantastic because of it. At one point, I turned around and the sand had piled up against me and I was looking for the battery, which was you know, half a car battery size, and I couldn't see it at all. The, the cable just went into the beach, disappeared into the sand. The whole thing had got completely buried, but it was still working. I took a cup of sand out of the camera that day, um, but it didn't matter because it doesn't actually have any moving parts, as long as the lens didn't have to come off. You've got a big fan in the back, fine. though, maybe, I guess. <laughs> yeah, mm. I, quite, I quite like the Phantoms because um, they are extraordinarily uh, good, 
I mean, they really, the picture quality, it's a faff to use them, but the picture quality is sensationally good. And you could see, especially if it was projected, um, I've seen it projected a couple of times, the, the pictures from the Phantoms was just so superior to the to really anything else we were using, apart from some of the aerial systems. I guess it's an absolute... I mean, the the, the data alone, obviously, is a pain when you're travelling and you yeah. with a low or, or, or no crew to really help handle it. But I guess mm. it's it's actually... I guess with the the variability of the with the sort of varying options of the uh, triggering, that yes. it's actually uh, fantastic compared to running that through ripping through lots of film on a on a SR high speed. Yes. Yes. Oh gosh. Yes. Literally, once the moment. Yeah, you wait. You not you're not ripping through data or film, uh, waiting no. for the moment to happen. That's exactly right. Because there's a, a cache in the camera, um, and you can just loop the cache. So the pictures are streaming into the cache and you just stop it after you can choose to stop it after the event happens. So for something exploding out of the sea where you can't see it coming or, um, very unpredictable, something that, that you don't know when it's going to happen, but you do know where it's going to happen. So you can get the framing correct. Mm. But then those cameras are perfect. We had another one, which was a bit older called a memory cam, um, which I used for the emperor penguins jumping out of the water. Um, and the highest frame rate, I think, was 750 frames a second that I used on that. So way beyond, you know, HSRs or whatever. Yeah. And the, um, but the the hole that the penguins were jumping through was really quite small. It was only a meter and a half across, and they'd come up quite often. There'd be long lulls, and then you'd get lots coming. And what that meant was I could just fine tune the focus really, um, until I had it absolutely where I thought they were going to come up. And then they'd come through so fast that it was impossible to tell if it was in focus or not, yeah. really. It was pretty difficult to tell what it was, even. It was just like an explosion of water. But the 750 frames, then playing that back, you just get this extraordinary thing going on where the, the, there was a reflection of ice in the water. So you could see it was just perfectly still. And then it would just start to bulge a little bit. And then the penguin's beak, you could see through the water, the penguin's beak was coming up and it displaced a bit of water. And then its forehead came up. And then the, the penguin's head came through. It was just amazing watching it. Um, and then the water all starts to stream off. When, once about half the penguins are out, the, um, the the coating of water on its body starts to fragment. And, and when the fins, its flippers come through, then it shattered the water coating. Then you get drops everywhere. And then it just, you know, it's at that kind of pace it was going through the frame. It's just an extraordinary delight, really, to get a picture like that. Apart from the fact that it's basically a computer with a lens on on the oh, front of it, it's yeah. it's uh, an absolute it's perfect camera for you guys for for wildlife and for nature. It's uh, yes. What what a what a what a what a joy of of um, modern technology. Exactly, that's exactly what it is. Because the the systems before the cameras with film that ran at those frame rates were just un, unwieldy, horrible things that went wrong all the time, and you could shred the film, and they would you know, get hairs in the gate and. They lasted for such a short period of time when you were running them that you had to pretty much cause the thing to happen in front of them that you wanted to film. And, of course, they needed lots more light as well because the sensitivity has gone up on the cameras too. So, um, yeah, they're, they're just brilliant. I mean, I, I would use them all day. They, they, they are a bit of a pain to use. That's the only thing. The interface is a bit rubbish. And you have to get used to the idea that when you... Um, when you've taken a shot that you've you, that you want to save, or even if you're reviewing whether you want to save it or not, because you kind of store it in the camera and then you save it into a solid state memory block that's like a magazine, mm. after which you can't do anything with it, um, except via a computer somewhere else. So once you've filled that up, that's that's your shooting done. 
Um, so you have to make a choice as to whether to keep stuff that you've cached in the camera or not before you turn the power off. Um, and if you've stored them into this solid-state magazine, um, you're committing yourself to filling that thing up. So there's a, there's a sort of shoot phase, and then there's a stop and think and select and maybe cut down and save yeah. phase. And while you're doing that, of course, fantastic things are happening behind you. Yes, that's but the problem. It's not that. like shooting, uh, you know, <laughs> shooting chopping food in a, on, a, on, a, on a pack no. shot stage. This is uh, no. life does not stop for you. No, it doesn't. And sometimes the best thing happens. You know, you've just taken a second best shot and you're deciding whether to save it or not when you see the thing happen so much better. And there's just nothing you can do about it. You just have to be quite pragmatic about it, really. Now, obviously, you've grown up the, through the ranks with film, of course, and, mm, and um, yes. um, uh, Blue Planet, I think, was 16mm a lot. And obviously, a lot of yes. projects were 16 Yeah, I did a lot on 16mm, yeah. Um, there must be some part of that uh, of the film process to mourn in in terms of the practicality of uh, of film. Is yes, there? well, the cameras have got heavy, <laughs> and the battery consumption's rocketed. So those are two really burdensome things from my point of view. I was just talking about it with a friend the other day, and we both were were we both started on Aries. Um, um, pretty much you'd just put a long lens on an Arri and you'd put it on your shoulder on a tripod and walk off the day and that would be that really with a couple of batteries but then you were tied to the 10 minute load and you maybe had two magazines so for the day unless you were going to take it back and get the changing bag out and load a new roll of film you were you were stuck to those two 10 minute blocks of work and if you were over cranking if you were if you were shooting slow motion you ended up with less than 10 minutes but it made us very um much more disciplined i mean there are pros and cons i don't think it's it's clear-cut either way really but one one gain is also a loss in some senses because we used to have 30 to 1 shooting ratios maximum um on things like the natural world series that i used to used to make programs for and that was because of cost because the stock was expensive and the processing and the the subsequent post-production was expensive Mm. so you had to really ration yourself and decide what you're going to film carefully in advance and you'd sometimes be thinking well i can see it happening now but it's a bit far away or it's not quite good enough or i'm just going to hold back till something really good happens film that and then you'd build a sequence out from that and that taught us all i think uh, a lot about sequence construction and how you'd retrospectively need to build up to the point where the key piece of action happened by shooting other shots that would support that and then wind down from it afterwards and those are useful skills but it did mean that quite often you weren't running when something good happened. You just you couldn't be, you know, because you couldn't run on spec because it was too expensive. Whereas now with video, with solid state, especially, especially with the, the ability to delete in camera, um, there's, no, there's no reason not to run uh, in case something might happen, actually. As long as you don't run 10-minute shots and then get it at the end of a 10-minute shot and then <laughs> it fell out all your storage. Yeah. So... I guess that the, 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 the thought would be the thought would be I guess that that film would be maybe more robust and there's that classic Ari thing yeah. that you know when you pull an Ari out of the box it's going to it's work. Going to work. Yeah, uh, but it sounds work. like you have uh, the Vericams and and the next version and and the solid state versions are seem to have that seem to have that sort of in their genetics as well. It seem to be you know uh, almost as reliable. Yeah, we didn't have any trouble with the tape Ferricams. The um, solid-state ones may be a little bit more um, fussy, and, and the, uh, there are some glitches, I think, with those. The, 
the thing is, of course, that what happened with Harry's generally, thinking back, we had a, an Harry for, I suppose, 10 or maybe eight years. I think it was 17 years old when I bought it secondhand. Mm. And in that time, it needed servicing, but it needed two things doing. It was converted to Super 16, and I think there was another modification we made to put an interferometer into it. Um, but in in two years of owning a P2 Vericam, um, the firmware changed. I had to reinstall extra bits of that to make it do extra stuff, which they introduced subsequently. It was it was changing all the time. And you could say those are improvements, but actually I think what happens now is the cameras get rushed out quickly to, to yeah. secure a market share. And then they add facilities to them, which really could have been there in the beginning if they'd waited a little bit longer and tested and would work without bugs and so on. So I think we're being cheaper used to though. Testing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, slightly. No, second hand Harry's were quite good value. <laughs> they are now. <laughs> they certainly are now. So do you do you guys like do you have I mean how many crews would you have running, say, on something like Frozen Planet? I mean, because you've got you've got time lapse, you've got aerial, you've got ground crews, you've got underwater as you say, you've got topside. Mm. Do good question. Uh, I mean, I do you do you have a time lapse unit, or are you doing that as well, or how how do you sort of specialize really or break it up? The the most the most um, saturated shooting for that series anyway was um, at McMurdo because the way that the U.S. Antarctic program works, um, they give they give grants to scientists and to um, what they would class as sort of educationalists or artists. And they don't give very many of these creative grants or uh, educational grants. But when they when they do, they give you full support. So jumping through the hoops is very difficult. But once you're through, the support you get is amazing. Right. And they, the, so the U.S. National Science Foundation saw that Frozen Planet was an unusual opportunity from their point of view to explain what they do, to, to explain the science that they do in the Antarctic and to, to make... Um, a case for doing it, I suppose. But part of their remit is actually just to explain what they what they do and what they fund with taxpayers' money. So there, when we when Frozen Planet um, qualified as a grantee, then the doors were open to film whatever was available from that base, and um, there was a lot available from that base, and so a lot of us went. I think there were at one point there were probably oh gosh eight different people filming there simultaneously, which is, in my experience, unheard of. I mean, that's that just doesn't happen on really on any BBC natural history programmes usually. Mm. It's usually yeah. a very small crew of two or three people who, who go for perhaps quite a long time somewhere and then come back and other crews will be going out in other places. But that So that was really unique and it was great. You know, it was really fun and interesting too. Um, and the smallest times would have been, yeah, literally three of us i think went to some places the boat ones were a bit more complicated um because there were crews on boats and sometimes if you're taking a fairly hefty ship somewhere or a boat somewhere then that's the main cost you might as well put some extra people on it and try and double up so svalbard was like that talking about those crew sizes then how do mm. you um what what is the average sort of crew size i mean given the fact that you're not necessarily um, handling lots of film, but you are handling lots of data, managing assets, yeah. archiving it, sending it back. I, I mean, is everyone, <laughs> like, I guess everyone's wearing three or four hats or? Well, yes. I mean, the, the ideal is if you're not doing it all on your own. And I, there are occasions when that is what happens. And 
you know, I'll sit there with a phantom filming in the daytime and then at night I'm downloading it and wondering why the things crash partway through and, and you go to sleep for a little bit and wake up and it's not doing what it should have done and you've got to stay up all night nursemaiding it. But the the majority of the time there are a minimum of two people. Um, sometimes a researcher or an assistant producer from the production who's helping logistically, uh, but also they might take on the data management, um, which is great. And I, I favor that really. Um, ideally, you have someone whose sole job that is, but we only did that a couple of times. It's it's becoming much more of an issue. And I think as the volumes of data increase on, on reds and things, and it's or an entirely phantom shoot that's quite data heavy then it does make a lot more sense to do that and you've it could be so rigorous with the backing up and with being absolutely sure that you've you've stuck to your protocol your system and your naming system even for files we did lose some some material through um those things going wrong a couple of times because it was all quite new four or five years ago from yeah. the bbc's point of view it was all entirely digital data Workflows for wildlife is quite quite a new thing, really. We were the last people to leave film behind as well, so it's all, <laughs> it kind of comes up and bites you quite quickly. So, what is the camera of choice today, then, um, oh, for a project to... leaving tomorrow? What would you grab? <laughs> um, the the next thing I'm working on, which is for the next couple of years, which is a, a program called The Hunt, a series for the BBC called The Hunt, which is an independent production. Um, the, the choice they've made is for the Sony F55s. Um, but Excellent. equally in the BBC, at the same time, there's another series starting and they're having to choose between those and the Red Dragon mm-hmm. 6K camera. So they're, they're going for 4K, basically. They want to be able to say it's acquired in 4K and it looks like 4K televisions are coming relatively quickly. It looks like 3D's falling a bit by the wayside for television at least in this country anyway, and um, what it's doing is it's pushing our side of things, which is, of course, ahead of the ahead of viewers. Yeah, if you're looking to not complete something for two years, yeah, exactly. you need to yeah. start to think about what's going to be expected. And I guess you obviously need to think beyond that and archival and... Ideally, but it doesn't actually often feature in their, in their calculations at, at the BBC, I think, the archiving. Mm partly because the formats change all the time anyway, but it, the archive doesn't contribute to the budgets. It does contribute to the BBC's budget, but it doesn't contribute to the programme budgets. So if the programme producers are trying to allocate their money so that they, it goes the furthest in terms of filming and post-production and all the rest of it, our archive quality isn't their first concern. So going forward, the um, the presumption is to at least, whatever we're doing, to just let's start aiming for 4K. I think that is the case. Yeah, I mean, there's a series at the moment. It was called Survival, but I think it's changed its title just now, so I don't know what it'll be called in the end. It's the successor to Life, effectively. Mm-hmm. And they used Reds, Red Epics for that. And the the argument was um, that the picture quality jump shows on screen. And if you're trying to if you're trying to wow people, and inevitably, it seems, when these programs are on, the, the main comment is the pictures look sensational, yeah. it seems. And it's not only the camera work it is sometimes the camera work but very often it's because they've chosen really good subjects and they've covered them in a really interesting way these are all production decisions really and um that there's often some kind of extra thing like it was for frozen planet or for planet earth it was the cineflex system of stabilized aerials used for filming wildlife behavior Um, and so there's always a a need an urge to find the next cineflex i suppose the next 
thing that will make people think, I've never seen anything like that before. I don't know how they did it. Yeah. And I think having seen some of the rushes from from survival and and I think these F55 cameras are going to do the same, there's a, there's a perceived real jump in quality on screen. And I think people are going to think, wow, that does look absolutely amazing. I haven't seen anything like that before, even if it's a familiar subject, which inevitably some of them will be, I think. So they're still in production, those things, right? So there's no real... Yeah. I mean, I guess they presume, therefore, then they will be finishing in 4K as well, obviously, not just shooting in well, 4K. Well, that's the, that's the difficult bit, actually, is, is what you do at the end. Mm. And there are lots of arguments for not using um, formats which where you have to go back to the raw footage because the, the data quantities are just unbelievably big. And it is a problem, I think, that that series is is kind of the first to encounter just how much data they're going to end up with. Because as I was saying before, if you give cameramen video cameras, um, which can store loads of stuff and allow you to shoot things on spec in case something happens, the temptation is huge to not turn off. Mm. And so I think all cameramen, even the film trained guys like me, who've, who've over the years tried to hold back, end up shooting more and, you get better shots sometimes, you get more interesting behavior sometimes, but you get yeah. a hell of a lot of data. And then if you're going to post-produce in 4K and have all the rushes available to you in case you want to crop or, or move within the shots and all these things that now 4K apparently allows you to do, then um, where are you going to put it all and how do you get access to it all? Mm. And it is, a, it is an issue. They haven't really caught up with that with the infrastructure yet. So I don't know, it's not my field, but I do see that there are, the producers tell me there are issues with that. So there are advantages in camera systems that compress in the camera and don't compromise too much. But I think what the BBC will do is it'll post-produce in HD and it'll keep the rushes in 4K probably, unless there's some um, extra need, like a cinema release or something, initially. Mm, but that yeah. might change. That might change quite quickly if 4K tellies come on stream fast. I think it seems to be changing fast. Mm. Yeah. Um, so you were talking about you know just sequence construction before. Uh, clearly, you guys are not just going out and randomly just shooting, you know, hell for leather and just shooting whatever moves in front of your in no. front of your lens. There no. is, I mean, the part of one of the, the beauty of of all of of, of these uh, your projects has been that there is a story, or even if it be stitched from you know, stuff shot months or years apart, there is yeah. still, mm. uh, there's, it, it, it makes it you have to have a, a story and, and a flow and a, yeah. and a beginning, middle and end, even if it's just a small sequence. Absolutely. How that, that, is, that I think, I think I'm just in awe of anybody who can stitch, n not just reality, but stitch nature, uh, the unplanned, na um, unplanned nature of nature, together into a story and and uh, i guess it is one of those things that the story sort of unravels as you shoot it or i mean you're following well, boards or how how do you it's, it's a really the, tricky thing the defining thing really i think if you if you um had to pin down one characteristic of what the bbc has built up over these years decades many decades of making natural history films and why they're good is that they they don't always get it right, but they have got a, um, expertise and have passed on generation to generation of filmmakers and expertise at storytelling on with material which is inherently quite unpredictable. It's not entirely unpredictable. So the, the starting point is find a good story, inevitably. Um, 
it isn't enough to say there must be something cool going on over there at that interesting place. And that almost never happens, that I'm sent to an interesting place to see what happens. Occasionally, but it's for a reason if it's that way around. In Frozen Planet, it was never like that. It was, okay, this is our list. Here's how we're going to approach each of these stories. Um, these are the kind of shots we'd like to get. This is where we're going. This is when we're going. Um, these are the people who are going to help us. And we'll wait for this long. And then if it's not working by then, we might have to try and find something else to do, which you know, will be off this list, A, B, C, D. So really structured. But then within that, so you might know, which is great from my point of view, because I love knowing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, within that, you react to what happens. So, for instance, that Gen 2 penguin story I was talking about in the Falkland Islands, where the, where the penguins come ashore and there's a sea lion waiting in the surf and the penguins have to come through the surf and up the beach and feed their chicks at the end of the day. Um, there are elements in that which, which any filmmaker or writer, storyteller, would would recognize they have to set up. You've got to set up that the penguins are at sea. You've got to set up that the sea lion's waiting. You do that perhaps by surprising people with it or hinting at it beforehand. You've got to set up the goal, which is the chicks on the beach looking at the sea um, and that there's some kind of threat which they perhaps don't understand. And then you let the story unfold in a linear way because the penguins come back, they try and get ashore, they meet the, the sea lion, scares them away. What do they do? What does it do? How do they react to each other? Then there's a chase. Perhaps the penguin escapes, perhaps it doesn't. Um, and what actually happened in that instance was sometimes it turned out that the sea lion would catch the penguins and then let them go again, perhaps because it was incompetent, perhaps because I think it was actually weighing them to see if they were full of food or not. Right. Because it turns out that the sea lions don't actually eat the penguins much. They do a bit, but they're mostly after their stomach contents because it's much easier for a sea lion to eat krill that a penguin's already collected than to go and catch the krill little shrimps one at a time. Wow. So by saving itself a lot of swimming around and instead being stealthy and ambushing penguins, it could get a lot of krill. So that, that was a revelation. We didn't know about that aspect of it. Um, but, but the consequence of that, I think, was that the penguin some penguins escaped and that was how they ended the sequence so it was a, it's a mixture of pre-planning reaction reacting to what happens and then some luck actually um there was only one good shot of a penguin escaping uh, back into the sea and it's easy so, to forget that that then plays out in the way that you saw it um smoothly and as though that was the only way it could have played out because of the skill of the producers and the especially the editors who craft that because it's not the easiest thing do you find then you're often sent back often I guess halfway across the world to then uh, at, at great expense to then go and get those pickups or those reverses or the shots um, that, that end up making the story that you you, you uh, I guess started unravelling the first time around yeah it can happen if, if you have to be pretty confident that the reason you didn't get it the first time isn't going to be the reason you don't get it the second time yeah so if that would be you could see that there was yeah right that there was scope for it to work and something intervened and prevented it working but the next time there was no reason for that thing to intervene weather or whatever then yes that does happen sometimes I mean for instance I went to Svalbard and one of the things we were trying to do was to film bears polar bears uh, taking Arctic tern eggs and chicks and the Arctic terns are very aggressive towards anything in their colony. And they are aggressive towards polar bears, which doesn't make a lot of sense when you're a little seabird and this polar mm -hmm. bear is huge. Mm -hmm. But they'll peck people on the head and they peck polar bears on the head as well to try and scare them away. And effectively, um, enough of them doing it does, does eventually scare away the polar bear or make it so 
saw in the nose that it leaves. When we went there first, we went to where the previous year there'd been a really big Arctic tern colony, and we got there and there were no Arctic terns at all. Um, something had happened, it was a different season, it was late starting or whatever, and they'd gone somewhere else. So the first year we couldn't film that at all. And then the second year I went back and we went somewhere else and we did film it. So you do get sometimes a second go, but but often it's um, it's quite rare, actually. And often it's either clear that a sequence has failed because it was just impractical and would never work, or... Um, you've got enough, enough to make it work or yeah. enough for people to decide, well, actually, it wasn't that exciting. We just won't bother with it. Yeah, It does sometimes happen, but usually there's, there's something in there. Sometimes it's not what you expected at all. It can be something completely different, but it's quite unusual. Well, I think that's part of the joy of, of what you do, I suppose. There's, there's uh, um, if you don't quite get what you're after, you'll get something else amazing. I think some mm. of the most fantastic jobs I've ever done have been those of those sort of... Uh, those sort of very small taste of what you do and it's uh, always the stuff that I hold dear you know it's the projects that I that I most uh, remember mm. where you have to it's real sit there yeah you, sit there for, for nights for three weeks try and wait to, for that perfect moon cloud revealing the moon shot or yes. whatever yes. it be you know yes and, yeah, it's um, such a great sense of satisfaction when it happens mm. if it happens it was a recent thing, actually. Um, sorry. And nowadays they just do it in post. But yes. <laughs> yes. You're not allowed to do that here. No, in, no. Um, oh, so yes, I guess there is there is a a, a mandate, I guess, that you, you can't uh, Well, if it's a documentary, it's quite strict. There are, there's a sort of pragmatic element to it, which is that I think everybody watching a natural history program appreciates that sometimes... If, you, if you've got one camera and you have to cut shots together, then it isn't continuous real-time action. It can't be. It's not a live program. And so there are gaps. There are bits taken out, and then there are shots joined together. And the order of those shots isn't necessarily the order they were shot in. And occasionally the animal isn't the same animal. But there are, because of the, the difficulties that broadcasters have had with, with documentaries about people especially, um, completely restructuring what actually happened and making a new untrue reality out of it as far as the viewers are concerned that's had repercussions for wildlife films and what what that means is that we have to be really cautious about what we do so if you say this is animal a here here's animal a doing this um and then you cut to animal b you can't keep on saying it's animal a you you can you can make the action continuous with several animals but if you say right we're following mrs elk and she does this this and this and it isn't mrs elk anymore then um the bbc would say that was that was wrong so there are there are guidelines and they're quite they're quite strict and it's sensible actually one one thing which i tried to do recently was um we were talking just then about whether you can go on spec and see what happens or whether it's all got to be strictly scripted in advance and there is a middle ground and the middle ground is when you follow what happens to one individual and if you're if you're doing that if you take that course it's a much more difficult course because you've got to really you've got to be lucky because yeah. something interesting has to happen but you also actually do have to follow an individual and that's not always feasible there are some situations when it just isn't feasible at all you couldn't do it and in those situations you don't pretend you're following one wildebeest in the great big herd that goes goes across the river crossing because you can't tell any longer once it starts to cross whether it's the same one or not yeah 
but you can, unless it's got a collar or it's albino or something. So there are situations where you can follow individual animals. And there was, for instance, I made a series for the BBC, for BBC Scotland, about the Hebrides, the, the Western Isles of Scotland recently. We filmed red deer rutting, and the male red deer clash antlers and fight each other. And you can tell the individual um, stags because they stay in the same places and they have distinctive antlers. And there are other things about them that you can tell them by. In one location on the Isle of Rum, you can they know exactly who's who, even who their mothers and their grandmothers were. So we told the story of what happened with two of these stags. The researchers had said these two will be interesting because this one's uh, mature and dominant and he's now getting quite tired. This one over here is... Um, less dominant but he's fresh because he hasn't fought anybody yet and he was later in the season last year he took over and so on so we could predict or they could predict that there would be a fight at some stage between these two and with nearly two weeks of waiting eventually that's what happened and you can kind of build up to a big battle between these two stags and then just see what happens and as it was the dominant one was winning and then slipped and the other guy gored him in the side and and he then had to had to leave so there was a there was a drama and a resolution and a and a battle which we couldn't have predicted the outcome of. We couldn't have scripted that. But knowing to be there in the autumn when they fight was crucial and to go to that location. And you're covering this with single camera? That was two in the end, okay. actually. We had a Phantom and a P2 very I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> yes. That's probably the <laughs> first time that activities maybe is probably being captured on, on super high speed like that. Uh, yeah, I think it might have been actually with the very slow motion camera yeah mm. it was interesting it was a difficult thing to do because it's the big chip means that the magnification that you get from the lenses is reduced compared to the smaller chip in the p2 in the very cam um yes and that's yes. A, focus my, is a joy now <laughs> so but difficult. it's making your images more 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 gorgeous i'm sure the craft is improving even if the yeah um, now that's that's only just screening, I think, in UK now, right? Because it's certainly probably going to take a little longer to reach uh, uh, the states and and down here in Oz. Yeah, I believe it's um, there's a distributor actually, and they're talking to American and Australian um, broadcasters. So um, I think they're not that far off selling it to both countries actually. So hopefully you'll see it fairly soon. It'll be yeah. called. It might be called Islands on the Edge. I think in Britain it was called Hebrides islands on the edge but that doesn't mean that much to people outside the uk so right islands on the edge would be four four programs or perhaps three now i'm gonna i'm gonna go back to uh the film stroke digital days one of the major changes is uh, particularly if you're talking about going to stuff like f55s and and 6k epics uh, you know dragon sensor we are talking with a significantly larger uh, sensor size which means if you're on the end of long lenses uh your job's I guess uh, getting a little harder post celluloid. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, I think what I do is so rarefied in terms of what, what normal filming involves that hardly anybody's interested in making my life any easier, really, or other people who use long lenses because it's it's a very specialised thing, and it's really only wildlife filming and sport and you know the occasional thing in movies, I suppose, that that needs really long lenses. We've been most recently um, for wildlife filming generally using HDA18s, the Canon long zoom lens it goes to 500 mil, and then you, then there's a doubler. So potentially, if if the thing didn't get a bit soft at the end, and if the doubler didn't make it a bit softer still, you'd use a thousand mil 
lens on a on a um, small chip, and that's a it's a massive magnification. This doesn't sound like a small lens. Strange. What's the range of the zoom? No, it's twenty eight to five hundred. Oh my god! Yeah. I, okay, I'm immediately going to be googling that one. That sounds um, sounds like a beast. <laughs> is it? It's not as big as you'd think. Okay. Actually, they, we used to use on the film cameras. Yeah, the, the old one, the standard six or lens. something, I guess. Yeah, it? or a three hundred mil with a doubler mm-hmm. um, prime lens, and then on video, Canon's um, HD forty became the standard. So that was ten to four hundred mil. But that really is a beast. That's a very heavy lens. And then this HJ eighteen came along, which was shorter, but it isn't geared for focusing. At the long end, really, it's a sort of news type lens that allows you extra zoom if you needed it for something Mm -hmm. like a battle that you couldn't get too close to or whatever. So it's not really, it's geared for focusing when you're close to something. It's not geared for focusing when you're far away. So it's, it changes from being usable to being completely soft in about half a millimeter of rotation. Yeah. And that's, that's a real pain, but you kind of get used to it, but it still is a real pain. Then imagine if you want to try and preserve that kind of magnification, which is very useful. And then you put a, a lens like that um, or any lens that gives that magnification onto a camera with a bigger chip and your depth of field is reduced, which everybody says is wonderful, which of course is wonderful for movies and so on. But you reduce the depth of field for, for what I do and it makes my life probably four times harder. And often the most useful shots or the most dramatic shots aren't the easy ones. They're the ones in that last 5% of difficulty. And if you pull it off and it works... Yeah. Great, but if you if they're soft, then they're useless. So and you don't it's probably really knocking have, off the top quality bits. You don't really have the option to just stop down then, really, because you're talking about high no. frame rates, uh, yeah. potentially with doublers on these things, and you know you, right. you just can't. You don't have you don't have the light to stop down, and there are slow lens to begin with. Or, exactly. Yeah. If you if you stop down beyond f eight and it starts, the lens starts getting soft again. Um, if you're matching magnification directly on a big chip camera and a small chip camera you actually end up with a physically larger lens the focal length has to be twice what it would be on a small chip camera if the chip's half the size Mm. um so then you've you've just sliced your depth of field anyway really it's it's just physics you can't you can't get around the the um consequences um one way or another you're going to get you're going to get caught out by it so uh, yeah, it does. It just makes things harder. What, what's often happening now as well on these F55 cameras for this um, Hunt series, we're putting um, adapters on the back of the HJ18 to spread the picture out to fit on the large sensor. So the, the lens is still giving the magnification it would have done on a smaller sensor, um, but it doesn't help with um, with depth of field. Right, it's a, it's essentially a sort of a, a I guess it's a B4 lens going up to yes. up to PL. PL, yes, that's right. Which has got an optical, a, optical step to it. It's got an optical element in it as well, so it spreads it wider, spreads the image wider, um, so it fits onto the larger sensor, and you lose, it might be as much as two stops, I think, of light, mm-hmm. which is a big, you know, substantial drawback, and again, exacerbates the problem with depth of field. Yeah, but the images are probably looking better for it, I guess. Well, it's very interesting, because you'd think if you did that to one of those lenses, which is already at the longer end of the lens, challenged and then you spread the light out and it's got to do more work for the amount of light that's come through the lens on a bigger chip which is perhaps more critical for um, resolution and so on anyway because it's mm. got it's got more sensors and it's it's got more ccds and it's it's doing a, a finer quality job you think that's not going to work 
But actually, on that lens, on the HJ18, it does work. It does work quite well. But you don't, you can't use the doubler really, and you have to just pull back a little bit from the long end of the lens. You, the last ten percent, it gets softer, particularly if it's wide open. Yeah. So you, you've got to watch the quality. But the but the wide end to nearly all the way to the long end is pretty good, especially around f8. So the the, I mean, the cameras are getting slightly larger. Um, yeah. Uh, it's hard to beat the compactness of, of an SR3 or so. So you got yeah. the cameras getting larger because you got a larger chip. Your lenses have to be longer, so your lenses are getting bulkier. That then means you're probably dragging around a heavier pair of sticks. Yeah, and a bigger head. Yeah. Yeah. What are you generally taking to the field? What 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 tripod are you generally um, working with? I've mostly been using O'Connors actually. Um, the lightest O'Connors twenty sixty. It's called, isn't it? I think, which is. Uh, which right. is a great they change the number of those small ones they, um yeah almost they're weekly. heavier now the lightest ones heavier than it used to be they're not light at all <laughs> no <laughs> they're not, not this is not this less, is anything o'connor is not what i imagine <laughs> uh would be wildlife photography um no. uh, on on the, on the equipment list it does make a difference though if you've got a really good head there isn't a perfect head though out there as far as i can tell still tripod heads are one of the bugbears and everybody's choice is different and we all make different compromises I think there still doesn't seem to be a perfect one that I can lift <laughs> you want stability you want uh, the fluid damping on really long lenses and you want yeah. it to be able to be uh, not um, dig a hole in your shoulder yes the thing with the O'Connors the O'Connors have been brilliant and I would have said that they were as close to ideal as as I would choose but they most recently I think they don't particularly like temperature change or um, the extremes of, of travel and they, they do seem to be getting a bit sticky some of the ones I've been using I don't own one, they're all hired but in extreme temperature swings they, they um, aren't as smooth as they should be on the pans and it may just be that they're getting old you know, because these are, these are out of production now and they're, they're ex-hire, well they're higher pieces of kit and they perhaps get abused a little bit but perhaps. not least by me <laughs> <laughs> John Thank you so much for your time for chatting. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jason. It's nice talking to you. How can um, anybody uh, catch up with what you're doing? I know you you need to mention your Twitter feed because you're a prolific Twitterer. And I love it. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, websites and yeah, just mention everywhere anyone can track you down. Um, well, I have a website. It's kind of a blog, really, but it's it's johnhson.net, um, and I do do tweets as well, which is at johnhson1. It's um, A-I-T-C-H-I-S-O-N, H-S-O-N. Excellent. Okay, well, we look forward to, to hear, uh, seeing more from you, and again, much appreciate the chat. No, it's a pleasure. It's nice talking to you. Well, thanks for that, John, and, and thank you, uh, Jace. So, since I think we spoke last, Jace, uh, they Literally, another... within five minutes, I think, of hanging up from you <laughs> in the last episode. They yes. released another GoPro. Another GoPro, yet another GoPro, uh, so the Hero 3 Plus. It's yeah. 3 Plus. Uh, it's got definite image quality improvements if you're, you know, a pixel pusher like I am. Mm. Uh, first impressions, do you hanker after one? Did you sort of... Uh, look, I've got so many GoPros. <laughs> <laughs> I keep getting the new one and I don't really use them very often. I have them and I kind of take them with me occasionally and... and 
I, I I don't use them as much as I probably should, and sometimes leave them behind and when I when I when I need them. Um, but uh, look, I think this is a very good. This is definitely a, a massive. Uh, it's more than just a three plus. I think it's quite a it's quite a reasonable uh, bump from the original uh, uh, from the first from the, from the Hero Three. Um, much better. I think it's you know it's a completely different slice, different sensor. Uh, they got a slightly wider field of view. Uh, the aliasing is better. The rolling shutter is better. Low light, dynamic, dynamic range is better. Low light is slightly better, a little bit better. Not as much of an improvement as over a lot of the stuff. Uh, I think it's added some bit more frame rates. Uh, the Wi-Fi is much stronger mm. and uh, better transmission distance and less latency. I think. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot. It would, would want to have a lot, lot of less latency because the old latency oh, yeah, was yeah. just oh yeah, hysterical. It wasn't 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 great. I mean, it was good for what it was. wasn't designed to you know remotely operate this thing on a on a, on a gimbal or something. You just it was designed to exactly what it was intended to do, which is to set up the uh, you know frame it, mount it to your helmet with your phone, and then put your phone in your backpack and go. You know that was my sort of use, or to be able to put it on a put it on the roof and be able to rec- roll record and remote remote it but not necessarily to operate the thing by it too much so yeah it's it seems to be a reasonable improvement all, all around if you don't have I think it's kind of like iPhones things like you know the 5 and the 5S kind of like if you've got the if you got the five, don't the 5S isn't so much of a bump, but if you're on a 4S, then then go. You know what I mean? Yeah, do those totally. incremental. Do those incremental every second iterations. Yeah, I'm I, sure there's a Hero Four along the way, and I think the plus, the plus actually, which is the fact that they they have they have shrunk uh, the housing considerably, but the camera itself is essentially the same, if not exactly the same dimensions. The housing has been dramatically um, shrunk without having to change the size of the camera because, as everyone knows, every little accessory and mount and clamp and bracket and housing and things is, uh, yeah, a lot of people who use these stuff all the time have a lot of money invested in all these this bracketry. It's great not to to have to uh, throw all that away and, and buy new stuff or you know wait for the manufacturers to to catch up and start shipping you know something that's going to fit what you just bought. Look, I I would like one, and if mine broke, I'd buy it. But I can't yeah. say that I'm going to dump my three. Uh, my okay, I got the black three and jump no. on this one. I do think that you can see like, some really good YouTube comparisons that people have done. I yeah, mean, just there is some fantastic people. Have spent I remember going a lot down the football time. field to check out how long the Wi-Fi was, so you could <laughs> yeah. see it in yards. That was great. Yeah. Yeah, no, some, it's definitely, if you don't have a 3, I'd definitely go for the 3 Plus. If you've got a, you know, one of the earlier ones or just the GoPro Hero, uh, yeah, go for, go, go for it. It's uh, very vastly improved and a lot of the things that were, you know, slightly an issue are, are, are much improved. Uh, one last uh, gear mention before I go. I've got the, and love the latest uh, iteration of the DP7 from Small HD. I've got the DP7 Hybrite. Oh, which, we, we had this on set, didn't we, the other Yeah, yeah, we had it, it on, the, uh, on the film clip the other day. Yes, in a beautifully you know, bright, bright sun uh, room. I uh, could easily see what we wanted to do. I had it out yesterday on the top of an F55 in bright sun. Easily pick sharps and framing and everything you want to do, basically, without having to worry about hoods and things. Uh, if you want to, of course, start to get into critical color uh, judging, then, you know, put a hood on. But uh, it is... Uh, and, and then it is really beautiful. I must say that the color is 
spot on. It matches everything they've got. It matches the Epic uh, OLED, the viewfinder. It matches the touchscreen. It matches every. It matches the rushes, obviously. So I'm really happy with its its color accuracy for everything I want to do. And yeah, you don't have it's it's fantastic out and about in in brightness without having to worry about hoods and things. And uh, I think. This is the same for the OLED and the same for the Hybrite. Is what is fantastic is the the interface, the software that comes with it. It's apart from the, the color accuracy and the brightness, the ability to have these kind of has these like hotkeys basically. Where as you approach them with your hand, it senses that and brings up the the menu. So there's no menus up there until you approach the monitor with your hand. Then you can bring up vector scopes and waveform and focus assists and peaking. Uh, Zebra, it has an anamorphic uh, de-squeeze, various ratios. Uh, you can do frame guides and adjust all of those and talk, you know, and do whether you want to do hatch hatches or fine lines or whether you give them ch- change their um, uh, translucency of the frame guides. And the other thing, major thing it does is cross-conversion. It has, it's SDI, but it's also HDMI, and you can decide how it transcodes one to the other and what its inputs and what its outputs do basically it's essentially it's a computer with a, with a, with with a whole bunch of plugs and sockets plugged into it so there's a lot they can do now and in the future with 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 firmware to make this really flexible one of the brilliant things is um that you can have pages and pages of these little touch touch um little hotkeys i guess so you can actually have and for every function, you can change all of the, the, like say the focus peaking. If you mm-hmm. want to have, you know, you've seen the ability to have focus peaking, outline sharp stuff yep. in red or in blue, or have it subtly just do it a little bit, or have it on set on full. So you can actually then have two or three versions of hot hotkeys for subtle blue. Uh, focus peaking or really extreme red focus peaking or um, you know you can have a hot key for three different anamorphic de-squeezes uh, and it's also uh, coming will be uh, functionality soon in the next f- few next couple of firmware updates will be the ability to record um, onboard recording oh, via, really? the S- via the SD card so it's not going to be recording like you know like cinema DNG or massive ProRes or anything it's mainly designed more for proxy proxy work cause just you are for dealing playback with... of a take or something Exactly, and you're dealing with you're dealing with 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 SD card, so it's going to be whatever is the limit of the SD card you know capability. So which can be still really very nice nice um, uh, nice files. Um, but what they will be able to do is even wirelessly, will be able to take the record trigger through HDMI or through SDI, so that we'll be able to record every take without fail. Um, and um, and and keep the file file names the same. So it'll have a, it, it'll be a very very good little proxy recorder that could literally happen through the Paralinks as well, if or through wireless wireless transmitters if you want to. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm very impressed. I can't wait for the recording to come, but uh, at the moment it's it's very very clear. Has this also has this um, talking about you know rigs and Steadicams and and movies and things. It has a very nice spirit level display. We can actually have you can you can change where it sits. Uh, you know, and it gives you like sort of arrows on the bottom and tops of the screen which go green when you're level, so it keeps the uh, the, the 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 imagery of the fact that it, you're level keeps it kind of subconscious, so that you can sense whether you're level without having to interfere with the imagery. Um, yeah, so I th- I'll just—it's very, very customizable, very clever. It's—it's it's not cheap. The it's two thousand nine hundred bucks or so, 
Um, if you've pre-ordered, you'll be getting yours shortly, and if not, get in now. It's uh, very, it's yeah, well worth it. And as I say, it's uh, beautiful color, very bright. Very, I'm very, very, I'm very happy. Bring them, bring the recording. Joe, at two thousand nine hundred, I'd want it to be fairly robust because I had. Oh a, man, yeah, yeah, it is, is it? absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah, absolutely. No, no, it's beautiful. It's 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 um, the exoskeleton system they have is very very nice. They have uh, a lot of beautifully machined metal plates that go on the back to adapt to um, different battery plates if you want to go to Canon to the LPE6s or you want to go to V-Lock or uh, the Sony uh, Sony Bats, uh, various Sony Bats or to go to Anton Bauer or whatever, they've got a battery plate to do that or Hyros, you know, you can plug in obviously lots of DC inputs and outputs and um, I think you can, you can get power out through USB uh, yeah, and the thing, obviously, cross-convert, which is fantastic. You can have, if you've got, say, some, uh, a monitor or a recorder that uses HDMI, you can just run the one SDI lead from your camera into it and then put your recorder or, or put your put your transmitter, HDMI or transmitter, say, on that monitor, and it'll take the... You don't have to run, you don't have to run separate outputs, which is kind of nice with the Epic, which is really only... Uh, which, you know, is quite limiting with its inputs and outputs, I guess. So, yeah, very clever. does a lot of things. So, uh, so it should. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, and thanks to Rode for um, <laughs> the <laughs> the Rode podcaster I'm talking on now. Actually, I think you are there too, Mike. I actually owned three Rode. Well, actually, owned two podcasters and one of the uh, broadcasters. Oh, the pro the Procaster. Oh, broadcaster. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The one that looks like a podcaster, a but black it's the podcaster, more, yeah, the more funky one. I think that's the Procaster. Yeah. yeah. I love Rode microphones. Yeah, it's fantastic. I don't, I don't have like any... I'm not saying this because they're, they're not a sponsor or anything, but I don't think they're, they're just they're my go-to microphone of choice. I just love Yeah. Them. I just wanted to simplify things here for the mic setup, and it's fantastic. One lead, one lead and it plugs straight in, yeah. and I've got my headphones plugged straight into the monitor. And I think what's really good is what I've had in the past with a lot of the other uh, mics and the mic I've got there at, 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 attached to the um, the um, the egg is uh, it doesn't require ice. I don't feel it requires any pop filters. It's really really good at you almost have your face right into it, and um, it's quite good at rejecting outside outside noises. And um, if you don't have an don't have a treated room. Uh, very, you know, it's plug and play. Sounds great, and uh, you don't need to have you know pop filters and um, foam foamies and all sorts of stuff all over the mic. You just literally plug it in and talk. Yeah, I'm. I swear to God, and it's I, cheap. I yeah. I mean, really, I don't know. I don't know if you had, if I had to buy a mic today, I my definite go to reflex muscle memory would be to go to Rhodes website. It's yeah. just, it's just, I don't, I haven't got from them yet, and I've got quite a lot of mics in one way or another. I haven't got a dud from them. No, that's true. And I had no, one no, problem same. with one mic that was a technical fault. I don't know if it was damaged in transport back from the states, and I mean, we transported back from the states, and yes. uh, I sent it in, and it got uh, repaired, and they sent it back to me. It was great. Yeah, no, it's terrific, and yeah, I, that was really affordable stuff. Like this, I think this is about two hundred bucks or something for a pro, for a podcast, which you would think would be a plastic a lot of- kind of thing that would be you know a bit tizzy and it's not it's like no, metal it's machined and... from a huge hunk of unobtainium <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay worth a mention thanks so uh what do you got coming up on this show list 
No, I, I, was, I was just thinking that we'd get to the end of the show, Liz. So I was just wondering what you're about to do. Are you about to head out? Are you staying in town? I think uh, we've got yes, the ACS I'm, Awards Night tomorrow night, right? Yes, ACS Awards Night tomorrow night. Um, the, the New South Wales Awards. Uh, looking forward to that. Um, about to go and look at, there's an Ari Amira in town. So Ari here in Australia, I'm having a bit of a show and tell. Uh, so that'd be good to get hands on that. I think that's very interesting. And try and get a handle on the actual uh, retail price of this thing, because I've heard conflicting stuff anywhere from exactly what we guessed to less than what I guessed to ridiculously higher than what we'd guessed. <laughs> so maybe, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> Stefan will be able to fill us in tonight and uh, let us know, have a better idea, because that's probably the number one question he's going to be asked. It's fantastic to bring out a new camera, but if it's only going to be ten grand cheaper than uh, than uh, an Alexa, no one's going to bother. Everyone's just going to get a second-hand Alexa. Not that there's that many of those around, but uh, yes, I'm heading off to do that. Um, yeah, posting a couple of things, and yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to ACS Awards. Yes, I'm looking forward to them too. They should be good, uh, and we want to thank the ACS who's doing stuff with us over at FX Guide and FX PhD, and uh, we'll be posting a uh, another one of our sort of. Uh, top tech looks at the uh, gear um, with uh, Tom coming up soon. There's a bunch of other stuff happening over at FX Guide and, of course, at FX PhD. If you want to check it all out, uh, you know where to go. At least I hope you do. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, I am Mike Seymour, and my friend is... I am Wingrove. And uh, if there are other people to follow on Twitter, we'd like to recommend them. And this week, I think we're going to recommend John, aren't we, from your interview? Yes, exactly. And uh, John is uh, John Aitchison1, I think. Let me get to the yep. link. And it's it is spelled as John, one word. A-I-T-C-H-I-S-O-N-1. Well, John A-I-T. J-O-H-N. Yes. yes. John Aitchison1 on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, you can also check him out, obviously, on IMDb if you want to look at some of the work that Jason was referring to that he has done. Um, okay, well, thanks so much for being with us here okay, this week on the RC Show. We really appreciate it. Um, we'll be back soon. It's a bit of a delay. I know from the last one, we apologize about that, but uh, we try and be as regular as we can. We had a couple of uh, hiccups in terms of scheduling. Called life. Well, yeah, and work. But we do yeah, appreciate true. it, and we do appreciate all your uh, Twitters and uh, followings on Facebook, as, of course, we do the emails that you send us. If you hear any... Uh, ideas for upcoming shows or uh, any complaints about this one, feel free to fire us an email. We always look forward to them. We'll just the post. former more than the latter, but go ahead. No, no, no. We, we don't mind either. Okay, thanks so much for being with us, guys. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See you, guys. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.